one. Hi everybody, I'm Walden Hughes, and on the other line, my wonderful co-host, who, and I'm going to have her introduce our really special guest today. Hello, Patricia, how are you doing? I am fine, Walden, and thank you for inviting me to be with our special guest. I'm, I'm going to go through a list of credits and see if you can decide who our special guest is. We've got... A person who has been acting since he was a youngster, he later had his own television variety show, performs with his band, The High Riders, and his son, Dustin. He's a writer, touring and recording artist, and he's the son of one of our heroes, actually hero and heroine. The name of his first book will give you a hint. It's The name of it is Growing Up with Roy and Dale, which was published in 1986, and nobody doesn't know Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Welcome, Roy Rogers Jr., Dusty Rogers. I am so happy to be able to meet you and talk with you. How are you doing? Oh, man, it's good to talk to you, too, Patricia. Walden, how are you, man? Good to see you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you being on air with me. Oh, gosh, this is, this is just so great. It really is a treat for us. I did not know, and, and we'll get into a whole bunch of territory here, I didn't know that you had your own show, the Roy Rogers Jr. Show. I did, sure, yeah. How did that I, happen? Well, it happened really quick because uh, I was uh, living in Ohio at that time. Linda, my wife, and I had only been married about, at that point, maybe three years, and uh and I had just started singing and uh, uh, with uh, with a group there in Ohio, and uh, I got a call from. I started going out and doing state fairs and rodeos and that kind of thing, county fairs, and uh, I got a call from uh, WWS Radio and Television the Station in uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, and the uh, they had a big show that, that that ran all the time. It was a variety show, and they said it's going off the air on a summer hiatus. Would I be interested in? bringing a show on TV, and I said, well, absolutely, I've never done it before, but hey, you know, let's get our feet wet and try it, so <laughs> so we jumped in there and did it, and I did land, it lasted all summer, I had a great time, I had a lot of great, I had uh, I had some great uh, guests on there, and uh, it, was, it was really a lot of fun. Give me one or two of the guests you had on the show. Oh, I had, uh, let's see, I had Barbara Mandrell came on at that time, she and I were about the same age, and she was just getting started, and she was driving a little tiny Silver Eagle bus, and <laughs> she came into town, and and I was able to get her uh, get her on uh, on the show, and uh, and I was able to get Hank Thompson one time come into a show a song with me, and uh, and uh, Johnny Rodriguez one time, and it was just you know just every once in a while I got a guest in there, but I, what I would do is snag them when they came into town to do, <laughs> to do a fair or something. I'd call them, and they they said, "Oh yeah, we knew your mom and dad." I said, "Well, you know, if you if you love mom and dad, please come do my show." Very and, cool. And they, the station. and they did, and they were just they're just wonderful people. I mean, that's oh, the way it is with most country people. They're just uh, just just the salt of the earth. And how? And and most of us know that if they don't, by the time we get to the end, everybody else will as well. What year was this? Oh wow, this was. Let's see. In 19, Linda and I been, got married in '67, so this year we'll be married 44 years. So we got. Uh, and this was uh, four years after we went. So seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, that was around 1970, 71. Around 70 or 71, summer mm-hmm. of 70. How cool! Well, we've got a lot of territory to cover, and I really appreciate your your being so generous with your time. 
with your dad and mom. Now, you called Dale Evans your mom. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah uh, I lost my mom when I was uh, just a few days old due to, uh -huh. due to an embolism, and when dad and then dad married Dale when I was only a year and a half old, so she is, you know, was my mom. So. She was mom from the get-go. Oh, get absolutely, and a great one. Yeah, well, we have a, an awful lot of territory to cover with the two of them. We've got film, TV, radio, recording artists. Dale was a writer. They had the restaurants, the museum, and, of course, parents of a very large family and great parents of a very large family. And we're going to cover your career, credits, accomplishments, books, um, where people can get your CDs and books, and, and we, we just really need to concentrate on this your will be, This will be at least 10 minutes long, then. Uh, at least. I mean, <laughs> like I said, we, I'll make breakfast for tomorrow if that's okay with you. We may wind up with a midnight snack if I hurry. Oh, no, this is fine. Okay, Roy Rogers, King of the Cowboys, mm -hmm. was actually born in a city. He was, yes. He was Where born, was he born? He was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, on 412 2nd Street on November the 5th, 1911. And uh, he was he stayed in he stayed in Cincinnati for well he was only a year and a half old when he left he and his mom and dad my grandma and grandpa Sly lived on a on a houseboat with my with dad's blind uncle Bill and uh, in 1913 the uh, Ohio River flooded and when it did the houseboat floated away <laughs> and they ended up coming uh, coming on shore in Portsmouth Ohio and that's that's where dad spent the rest of his young young childhood was in Portsmouth in a little area called Duck Run Ohio Buck Run. Duck Run, yeah. Now, now I I know that later on there was some question about Roy being from Ohio and being king of the Cowboys, but by golly, Buck Run would have made it. <laughs> I mean, just. Well, I know. think you know, I'm, I, you know, a cowboy. That you know, everybody has an idea what cowboy is, and I think cowboys not only. Not only uh, just a person, but there's a, there's an image there, and there's an uh, there's an aura that that's a cowboy, and there's a lot of us who weren't cowboys but feel that we we are because we 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 take on that genre that uh, that cowboys, you know, their code of ethics and their mm -hmm. morals and and things that. Uh, so uh, when we were younger, when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a cowboy like my dad, and uh, so even though he was a farm boy from Ohio, he came out to California. Even though he was a silver screen cowboy. He had every bit of the wisdom and the wit and, and, and the kindness of a cowboy. So. And the look. Absolutely. Fabulous, <laughs> Absolutely. fabulous look. Anybody who didn't fall in love with Roy Rogers was clinically dead. <laughs> well, he was a, he was a anyway. favorite amongst the youngsters, I know that. He sure was. Um, now, Dale was not born Dale Evans. No. She no. had a name change as well. Yes. Uh, Dad was born Leonard Franklin Sly. And thank goodness my dad changed his name in 42, otherwise you'd be talking to Lenny Jr. here. <laughs> but uh, Dale was born uh, October the 31st of 1912, and she was born in a little town in Texas called Uvalde, Texas. And she was born Frances Octavia Smith. So, you know, I think I think uh, my grandparents had a good sense of humor when, when, my, when my parents were born because of they, with, with the names that they had, uh, thank goodness they changed them. They had, um, or she had, a brief stint at a radio station early on in her career, according to the notes I have. Is that correct? She did. Uh, actually, she started out um, as a uh, insurance uh, writer. Her, uh, she worked for an insurance company, and she would write policies. You know, she would fill out policies and stuff like that. But that wasn't where her head was. Her head was in music. She always loved music, and she would, 
she was constantly writing songs, and the, and the boss came in one day of the insurance company and saw her sitting there writing out lyrics and song sheets instead of working on what she should have been working on. And he said, you know, Francis, you really need to get into something that you enjoy. You need to get into radio. And he said, I have a friend of mine over here at WHAS, I think was a radio station. I'm not really sure. She did two or three different ones. But... Um, uh, they, uh, he said, yeah, "I'm going to, I'm going to get you in touch with him, and you, you go over there because at that time, in our history, uh, people were doing live radio. You could go in and sit there with your guitar and play, or if sit at a piano and play, and that's what mom did very well. She started playing piano when she was a youngster, and so she, they sent her over to the radio station, and uh, the gal, the guy there said, well, you know." Francis, uh, what, you know, what's your real name? And she said, well, it's Francis Octavius Smith. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, Francis uh, is okay, but, I, you know, you really need a stage name. You need something that, that really pops, something like Dale Evans or something like that. And she said, well, Dale, said, that's a boy's name. And he said, no, it's not. It could be the one. So she kind of took it on, and it kind of stuck with her. But she, she started out singing live on that radio, and then she kind of progressed from there. And uh, But radio was her first love, or singing was her first love, actually. That's amazing. Now, according to the notes that I have, and they are not always correct because everything you read on the Internet is correct, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, I know. Um, I have that Under Western Skies was your dad's first movie. Yes, it was. Uh -huh. It was. And, and is that the one where he wound up with his name change? Yes, it was. In fact, he was. Uh, he had done. A couple, you know, he and the Pioneers were under contract at Columbia Pictures uh, in early on, and they had been hired as a Western band to bank up, back up fellows like uh, Charles Sterrett, Durango Kid, and they were all under contract over at Columbia. And uh, Dad had heard in in 1930, late late of 37, around they they were testing for a new singing cowboy republic because Autry had left the studio over a studio contract. Uh, he he figured it, they were going to make more movies than what he was supposed to according to contract. So he left. Well, they were looking for a new singing cowboy. So Dad said I saddled my guitar and went over there. And he said they were he was about the 18th guy that they they uh, screen tested. They liked what they saw. And uh, said, "Well, what is, you know, what is your name?" And he said, "Well, you know, we know it's Leonard Sly, but don't you have a stage name?" And he said, "Well, yeah, I do. It's called it's Dick Weston." And he said, "Well, you know, there's already a Dick Ferran, a, a singing cow. I mean, not a singing guy, but a cowboy that works in the in the pictures." He said, "That's you can't. Let's go with something different." So they asked him, you know, is there anybody in your lifetime that you really admired? And Dad said, well, sure, I, I've done several shows, and I really admire Will Rogers. I've done shows with him in San Bernardino in Southern California in the 30s. In fact, they did the show with him just a week or so before he was killed up in Point Barrow. But um, they um, uh, they said, well, we, we could, you could use Rogers, but you certainly can't use Will, so we need to come up with another first name. And they said, uh, somebody blurted out, well, what about Leroy? And Dad said, Leroy? He said, man, I went to school with a Leroy. I never could stand that kid. He said, <laughs> he said well, somebody then hollered, well, what about just Roy? Well, they ran it around the table, all of the folks that were there, about three or four times each, and it just kind of rolled off everybody's tongue really well. So he took it on. He said, hey, I'll take it on. I'll, I'll use Roy Rogers. So that's when it started. And then it, that was in 19, he signed his contract in October the 13th of 1937 with Republic. And he was Roy Rogers at that point from then on. And, but he, and he, didn't, he didn't change it legally until 1942. 
Someone sent me last week uh, a compilation of heroes, the cliffhangers from heroes, and I believe Roy Rogers was in there where, um, you know, you get into these just awful situations and you wonder how they're going to get out of them. And mm-hmm. uh, It was just wonderful to see the two of them up on the screen. It was just great. I want to talk about Dale specifically in a minute, but for now, could you tell me how they met and how they became a pair in the movies? Sure, there's a long road up to that point, but uh, they actually ran across each other the very first time at Edwards Air Force Base out in California. There was a there was a bigger USO kind of a show going on on the air base, and uh, they invite, you know, of course, when they have those things, they always invite a lot of the Hollywood stars and starlets because it's close, you know, to Hollywood. And um, so uh, they were out there both doing their thing, and Dad, Mom was singing, and Dad was doing his thing with the Pioneers, and and singing some on his own, and they just kind of met each other and said hello, and that was about it, and then it went on. And then it took about a year later, they met again at a big function down in Hollywood, uh, kind of like a, and it was a dinner dance award show or something, and uh, they met each other again, and Dad asked Mom to dance, and they did, but that was the end of that for a while. So they didn't see each other again. This was Oh boy, this was another two, maybe two years or something like that. Uh, uh, they started, uh, they did a movie together in 1944. Uh, they were looking for a starlet to uh, be, they could sing and, da- and, and, and dance and ride a horse and it had to be gorgeous. And so they, Dale got the call. She was working for Fox and uh, uh, studios at that time. And they sent her out to try out for, uh, to lead against Roy, uh, I mean, opposite Roy in, in The Cowboy and the Senorita in 1944. That's when they first started working together. And, uh, of course, it was just, they were just magic on the screen. You could tell right off the bat that, uh, that they fit together very, very well. And then, of course, when I lost my mother uh, in, uh, in 19, when I was born in 1946, two years after they did their movie, uh, it, it took about a year and a half or so, but Dad got up the courage to ask Dale to marry him. So that it just was, you know, kind of a meet and greet kind of a thing every once in a while. And then they got a chance to work together by fate. And, of course, the good Lord handles situations like that and puts people in the right place at the right time, and it just worked out. How many films did they wind up doing together? They did, 20, did 27 pictures together uh, in their in their lifetime. Uh, when Dale uh, uh, when Dale and Roy married, of course, in 1947, the studios said, "Well, we're going to pull Dale out of the Roy movies because nobody's going to believe that uh, that a married couple could do a movie together and that kind of thing, and it wouldn't work." when they know their husband and wife and they're playing opposite of each other. So they took Dale out for a little while out of about six of Dad's pictures. But uh, the, the, the fans gave such an uproar and sent so many thousands, hundreds of thousands of letters to the studios. And we put Dale back in that they did. And uh, so from then she worked with every picture with him from then on. But uh, about 27 total. Did everyone in the audience know that they were married? Oh, sure. Yeah, once they got married, yeah, everybody knew it. I mean, it was all over the the, 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 the tabloids. Well, there weren't any tabloids, but it was all over the newspapers at that time that they got married. They were actually got married on the movie set over here in Oklahoma, in Davis, Oklahoma, in on New Year's Eve of 47. I, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that. That is too How did he learn how to ride and rope? Well, he, he he was raised on a farm, so he you know when he was a young man he had a he had a pair of mules, a G and a haul, what they call a G and a haul, um, a left and a right pole uh, uh, mules, and he would ride his mules every once in a while. And then his dad got him a 
there was a sulky horse that came up for sale who was a retired sulky horse and uh, they were going to retire him out of the racing business and so my grandpa saved up enough money and bought him and bought her I should say her name was and dad called her babe and um, so he had a horse finally and so he he rode uh, around the farm a lot and he would of course he would play cowboy like we all did in those days and uh and uh, did a little roping, uh, uh, you know, on the on the, the sheep and whatever else they had on the farm. <laughs> but he didn't really hone that skill uh, uh, really well until he came to California uh, and uh, started working around the movie studios then. And then he learned to set a horse pretty well. And, uh, and then I, then later on when he got Trigger, uh, there was just, I mean, that was a match made in heaven. And those two, I mean, there was not a better match at all that I can ever think of because Dad could ride like the wind and Dad would always... Say well, there's a, uh, there would be no Roy Rogers if it wasn't for Trigger, and I, you know, I kind of think it was a mutual uh, love affair between those two. Definitely. Where did Trigger come from? I've heard a story about his background. Well, you, you know, people, you know, if I, if I if I had a dollar for every time I had somebody say, well, uh, you know, Trigger, I know where Trigger came from. He was from a farm just next to me, just down the road, and Farmer Jones told me he sold Roy, Trigger to Roy. Well, I could retire, but. <laughs> But uh, Trigger actually came out of uh, there was a uh, there was a uh, studio um, uh, horse rental place that uh, took care of. And in fact, they handled all of the horses for the studios because the studios they didn't have facilities to take care of horses. So there was an, an outfit called Hudkin Stables that was in the valley out there in Southern California, and uh, they would lease the horses uh, or rent them out to the studios when they had uh, Western Pictures. They needed horses. They would they would send the horses up and. Uh, and the guys would uh, would use them. Well, uh, when they were looking for uh, a horse for Roy, um, of course Trigger came into the into the picture. But Trigger was actually he was born or, or foaled uh, right there on, on a on a stud farm in San Diego, California. And um, uh, Hudkin saw him sitting out there. He was uh, standing on the side of a hill, and the sun is hitting on him. And they, and of course his name was Golden Golden Cloud at that time. And uh, they bought him up and brought him out. And so when Dad was, when the Studios Republic called and said, we need a horse for a new singing cowboy we have, they brought up about eight horses, and Trigger just happened to be one of those eight. And uh, Dad said, I, Trigger was the third horse I got on. He said, I whispered in his ear. We took off toward the end of the street. He said, he turned on a dime and gave me nine cents change. He said, this is the horse I got to have. <laughs> so from then on, it was just Roy and Trigger. And I think Trigger was just as popular uh if not more so with the little girls than dad was. I mean, you know, he, he, everybody wanted to have a trigger. And, and that's that's the biggest story I hear most of my life. When I'm out doing shows and stuff, the people come to see us here. They just, you know, they talk about, oh, man, I, I wanted a horse like trigger. Of course, I never got one, but he was a black and white pinto, but he was trigger as far as I was concerned. So very popular horse. Very beautiful horse. Oh, yeah, he was beautiful very much so. to look mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. and smart besides. Such a nice combination. Mm-hmm. I had read that Bing Crosby was part owner of the stud farm. Is that correct? That could be. Uh, you know, I really don't know uh, that part of it. All I know is that Hudkins was the one that bought him. It could have bought it from the stud farm. And then, uh, Dad, of course, Dad bought uh, Trigger from Hudkins Stables uh, mm-hmm. a little bit later. Yeah. Talk to me about the radio show. Oh, wow. The radio show is one I... Uh, of course, they, came, they, they were doing radio shows before I was born. I mean, Dad and the Pioneers were doing uh, shows. And then when Dale and them married, I was just a, an infant, but they were they would start doing the variety radio shows. They did two different styles. They did the variety show where they would have 
uh, either Country Washburn and his orchestra, or they would have uh, the Sons of the Pioneers as guests, and they would have Gabby, and they would have uh, uh, Pat Buttram, and they would, you know, have different uh, people come in and play different parts, and they would sing. It was a variety. It was a different different artists. And then they did a dr- dramatic series where they did actual stories, like like you said, the serials, the kind of the cliffhangers that they would do every week for for the uh, the theaters. They also did it for radio, so you kind of had to tune in. You know, almost every week to find out how the thing uh, came out. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they were they were terrific shows um, and and done very very well. And if you listen to them in those days, there was no going back. There was no editing. There was no you know, and and how those people did what they did, uh, especially the pioneers with all the beautiful harmonies and Country Washburn and his band, and not hear many clinkers at all or you know or, or mistakes uh, uh, vocally. It, it's just an amazing thing. No. And it's um, just a training you go through to do it, you know. Uh-huh. As you say, there were no do-overs in radio. Of course, Yesterday USA concentrates on old-time radio. Mm-hmm. So the Roy Rogers and Dale Evans shows wind up as favorites with an awful lot of people. Oh, I sure. send out radio shows mm-hmm. to people who ask for them, but they usually have to answer trivia questions <laughs> first. And people sometimes ask for the Roy Rogers show, and sure. I'm, I'm just so delighted to be able to send them out. Uh, we're talking with Dusty Rogers, who is Roy Rogers Jr., son of Dale and Roy Rod- Dale Evans and Roy Rogers. Um, did she ever go by um, Rogers? Did I ever pardon? I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I jumped in with a question uh, before I even finished my statement. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Did she ever go by Dale Rogers? Well, it was Dale Evans Rogers. I mean, yeah, she, when they were married, you know, that she took on Dad's last name, but it was always Dale Evans Rogers. And, you know, for, and, for the, and she had the same problem. I mean, she didn't, she, that was a stage name, was Dale Evans. So when uh, she had to she had to change her name to uh, Dale Rogers or Francis you know <laughs> Francis yeah. Smith to Dale Rogers too because it was a a problem for her too so yeah it was Dale Evans Rogers Did you ever have an identity crisis uh, no, not really. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it was one of those things, if you called Roy out, uh, you know, sometimes both of us would come, but everybody called me Dusty most of the time, so I didn't have a problem at all there. What is your middle name? I, I don't have a middle name. It's just Roy Rogers Jr., and Dusty's kind of a nickname that Dad gave me. He was going to name me after Dustin Farnham, who was a stuntman who worked in his movies, and in the last minute, he changed his mind. He said, no, I'm going to call him Roy Jr., and I'll just call him Dusty for short. So that's how I got the nickname. I don't really don't have a, cent, a middle name. I do have a Christian name my mom gave me, which is Daniel. And she got, you know, because of Daniel and the Lion's Den, I think because I had five sisters is the reason she gave me that. <laughs> <laughs> that indeed is a Lion's Den. <laughs> oh, that's great. I like that. Talk to me about the TV career for the two and what made them so extraordinarily popular, not only among kids, but among adults. Well, I think because of the adult thing, I think it was, you know, when Dad Dad's career as far as the movie business, uh, his contract wound up with Republic in 1949. And uh, he wanted to do television because he thought that was the thing coming up. And, of course, the studios fought him tooth and nail because they said, well, you know, television is not going to amount to a hill of beans. I don't know why you want to go there. Well, he Dad knew better. And he said, well, look, if I, I've got to have some, some rights and I'll re-sign to do some more fo- – pictures with you, but I've got to be able to do television. They said, absolutely not. And he says, okay, then I'm not going to resign. So he went on to, uh, and he got, he came up with the idea of doing the, the, the TV show because um, uh, he 
thought that would be the direction they needed to go. But he wanted his TV series to be, uh, uh, you know, I mean, have all of the, the interesting stuff and the adventure and the cliffhanging stuff in it and stuff. But he needed a, he needed also a, a comical break in there somewhere to keep that on the light side. And that's why he put Pat Brady in a Jeep instead of on a mule or, you know, on a, on a big fat horse or something. It was just kind of something that was a little bit different that he, because he noticed the kids when dad, you know, dad had a Jeep and every time he'd drive it by, the kids would stop and point and, and, and laugh and look at it. And so he thought, well, I'm going to put Pat in the Jeep. But the main thing of his, why parents, I think, liked so much his show was there was always a really good message at the end. In other words, if you, if you do this in your life and you treat people like this, then that's the way you're going to be treated in return. Um, you know, so it, that was, I think, the one thing why they could kids, parents weren't afraid at that time. Nowadays, you don't do it, but in those days, you could leave your child in front of that TV because at one time there was about seventy percent of the shows on TV were were, were westerns, and you didn't worry about if they're getting a, a wrong message because especially with Roy and Dale, you knew that your kids were going to come away from that going, mom, Dale said, you know, that I should do this. And Roy said, I should do that. And, you know, I should brush my you know, hair and take care of myself and be kind to our dog and, you know, let, let go to Sunday school on Sundays and, you know, eat all of our food and don't waste any. And, and they would do it. And I mean, what better, what baby, what, what better babysitter could you have than, two Christian people on TV telling your kids to do the right thing and you just don't see it anymore but that's why that's why parents love the Roy and Dale show so much great how about their recording career wow that 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 spans a long time uh, I mean my dad and the pioneers were recording way back in 1933 34 um, actually 34 and mom had been recording Dale had been recording even before that. She used to work with Anson Weeks Orchestra and stuff clear back in Chicago and New York. And so both of them recorded separate. Because my mom was a big band singer. Dale sang the big songs, you know, the big with Tommy Dorsey and, and, and that kind of music. Uh, where Dad was more of the Western. I mean, he just did, did all Western. So it didn't seem at all that they would ever link up i mean they're, they're far far ends of the spectrum as far as their music goes but they were recording very early dad with deca and okay records and some of those really early ones and and mom was doing a lot of things with uso and stuff later on where she would just sit with a piano and sing songs that soldiers in world war ii would re request uh, uh songs done and she would sit and sing those so they were pretty much far apart as far as their recording careers go but when they got together I mean, they sounded terrific together. I mean, I, I don't know what. It was about their vibratos or or the, just the richness of both of their voices because Dad was a tenor and and um, and Mom uh, could sing a little bit lower note if she wanted or she could just go clear out of sight with a, with a high. So uh, their range uh, was both of, with both of them was terrific. And, uh, and I think they kind of melded. My mother never got over, Dale never got over the big band sound. She always wanted to do... When we go out on state fairs and rodeos, she wanted to have that orchestra there. And uh, so for Dad, who was just a flat-top guitarman, um, having an orchestra behind you wasn't something that he really liked, but he did have them there because he used Country Washburn in some of the early radio. So I think it was a good combination, a good meld of the two together. And then, of course, when they... They would they would uh, link their writing styles. My mom always wanted big more of a more production, and my dad wanted less. He wanted it simple cowboy, and 
And they, they were at odds every once in a while. You know, I, my mom would always, you know, when they get on the road, road to do a show or if they were going to record, you know, they started recording uh, for Capitol and they were doing religious albums. They were doing some beautiful Christian albums. And, of course, mom wanted the big band sound and dad wanted it simple. And they got into it a couple of different times on who was going to win. And, and you always heard the big band sound in most of it. So I think mom probably beat him out on most of it. But... <laughs> Christian music is an interesting combination. Yeah, oh, it is, it is. But, you know, it, it seemed to work. And, and it was just, you know, it was at a time when Roy and Dale could do no wrong. And, and I mean, everything that they did just clicked in their personal appearances, in their, in their, on their TV show, on their variety show, on their radio shows. Everything seemed to click. And, you know, when you go in with a preconceived idea of how much you love two people, they, they could come out and fall on their face and you'd give them a standing ovation. That's just the way they were. I mean, people just loved them that much. And that's phenomenal. I mean, you know, you could, it'd be hard to do that today. But in, in, in those days when things were a little quieter, simpler, the war was over, America was prosperous, and we were all, all everybody was working and, and enjoying life. And it was, just a, it was just a wonderful time in our country. And those two people just happened to hit it right at, the, right at a good time. We're so happy they did. Oh, amen to that. Dale Evans, there were not... Many women, she might have even been the first to make a mark in Westerns. Now, part of the romance of hero cowboys for the girls in the audience was having romance with the hero cowboys. Sure. But she already had Roy Rogers sewn up. Mm -hmm. What made her be so well accepted and so popular with that dramatically different role? Well, she had a strong female role. I mean, it was very strong. I mean, you know, in, I mean, in 1942, they did their first, first picture together. And, and right off the bat, she had a really strong presence in that. She played a, a, a Spanish singing gal named Isabella Martinez, and she didn't know the Spanish language, but she, you know, she was a fair-haired gal from Texas, so they had to dye her hair black and, and darken her skin, and she had to learn all the songs in there phonetically that were Spanish, because she, she didn't understand the language. But Mom was one of those gals, she was from Texas, and Dad used to tell me when I was a young boy, he said, son, you can tell a Texan. <laughs> But not much, <laughs> and and that was it with mom. And she had this. She took no. She would never take no for an answer. She just bullheaded and went into it. And people saw that that she was very strong. And they thought, well, why don't we, why don't we put her in these movies? Give her a gun. Let her wear a gun. Let her ride a horse instead of riding in a buggy. And let her ride with the big guys and see what happens. Well, that for a young lady in the 40s and 50s to see a woman who could who could shoot as good as Roy could, who who always got herself in trouble because she didn't, you know, was sticking her nose into everything. But, but on the other hand, when she did, she handled it really well. And f for a young gal to see that strong female lead role w was a was a phenomenal thing at the time. I mean, women didn't wear guns and they didn't ride horses. This was just something altogether new. And and the girls, I mean, the, the young ladies just jumped right on that, and that's why that's why Dale was so popular. Is that, that there's a woman who can hold her own with the fellers, you know? So she actually became a role model instead of someone who sneaked in and stole the cowboy. Absolutely, it showed a different side of the women that they could that they could make decisions on their own. That they could, in tough situations, make a decision that might make a good outcome, and and still be feminine 
about it, but still be strong. And, and when somebody got in her way, uh, she'd whack them over the head with a frying pan or whatever it did. She wasn't afraid to go ahead and make the mark. So uh, that's what that's what young ladies loved about Dale. How very cool. Yeah. She wrote Happy Trails to you, is that correct? Yes, she did. Oh, talk to me about that. <laughs> well, Dad, it, uh, Dad, you know, was, uh, was still, they, both of them were doing radio. Uh, and Wendell uh, married Dad in 47. Uh, she'd been with him a couple years, and they were still doing radio. And Dad, with the Sons of the Pioneers, had a theme song that they used called Smiles Are Made Out of the Sunshine. It was, a, you know, a, be- a beautiful little song, but... Uh, Dale, you know, the more she worked with him, and she said, you know, Roy, you are a cowboy. You, I mean, the sunshine thing is great, and I'm sure the kids love it, but you're a cowboy. You need a trail song. So that day, in about a half hour, she sat down on the back of an envelope, and she wrote out the medley and, uh, and the melody on it and the words, the lyrics to Happy Trails. And she got the idea of of Happy Trails from the 18, one of the big Grand Canyon Suite. There used to be a big orchestration thing called the Grand, Grand Canyon Suite. And right at the very beginning beginning of the Grand Canyon Suite is this huge swell of the orchestra, and they go, da-da-da, da-da. And she thought, wow, da-da-da, happy trails to you. Wow, that sounds good. I like the limb. And so she started working on it, and within a half hour, she cranked it out. She taught it to the Sons of the Pioneers. And that afternoon, they did it on the radio, and it was their theme song from then on their entire life. So it shows you what you can do in a half hour if you put your mind to it. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. it really is. Yeah, that song, you know, that song two years ago went into the Grammy Hall of Fame. So it's it's a, it's quite a song. Grammy Hall of Fame. Yeah. That is incredible. It is. It really <laughs> there is. There are people out there who struggle for a year trying uh-huh. to get a tune right, and it will never even see... Yep. That's, that's it's just you know it's just one of those songs that just uh, everybody caught on to it and everybody knows it. I don't care where you go. When we kick off into the end of the show and we start singing, everybody they sing right along with us. I've seen, I've seen uh, uh, deaf people sit, sitting there and they'll they'll sign it, you know, out there in the audience. Uh, they know all the words and they sign the words and, uh, and and it's been played at funerals. It's been played at retirements. It's been. <laughs> It's it's been played for just about everything, and one guy uh, uh, even played it at his div- divorce proceeding, sang it there. So I guess it's a <laughs> it's a pretty popular song. Sang it at horse what? At a divorce proceeding. Oh, divorce? Are you? When, they, when, the, when the judge said uh, granted the divorce, he started singing to his wife, you know, "Happy Trails to You." So I guess you, I guess you can use it for just about anything you want. I, I think that's a classic definition of universal song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great! Divorce proceedings. Yeah. We'll have to remember that one. <laughs> Dale was a writer. Pardon? Dale yeah, oh, absolutely. Writer. Yeah. Oh, 28 books. Are you kidding 28 me? 28 books. 28 books. She was working on on her 29th when she passed away. But uh, yeah, she just. Uh, Mom was one of these people who um, was a deep thinker, but she always she always tried to put her thinking of how things went and and correlate it with what the Bible says. What's the good book say about things? And she studied the Bible pretty heavily. That this woman knew. If you one one person that I found in my lifetime that I didn't ever want to challenge on a verse verse by verse knowing verses from the Bible was my mother. This woman, I mean, I'm, I I swear she had the whole thing <laughs> memorized because 
she would. It didn't matter what the subject was. You know, back in the in the in the '60s and early '70s, you know, we had the the, the loving generation, and so my mom decided to write on that. So she wrote a, a book for teenagers called "Cool It or Lose It." You know, and it was all based on scripture and what the good Lord says about doing what you're doing. That it could end up wrong for you. And this was the way she was. If she felt that the, uh, you know, that there, she wrote one called "Woman at the Well," which was. Uh, I thought it was one of her better books about ladies coming to a certain position in life and uh, and uh, not knowing how to handle it and having troubles at home and stuff. And it was about the woman who came to the well to draw water and and, uh, and the Lord spoke to her. And uh, you know, it just it went on her entire life like this. You would just pick up on a subject, and she'd just start writing. And most of the time, she wrote on the back of her old scripts that she had from the movies, you know, they're blank on the back, so she'd sit there and write on those. Well, the problem with my mom's writing was that when she she went back to her secretarial days and she knew shorthand. <laughs> so she'd be blitzing through this, you know, this big uh, tirade on how she thought things should go, and she's half of it is, or more, is in, is in, <laughs> in, in shorthand, and the rest of it's in words. And I mean to tell you, it it was it, it I, I don't know how the people that got her books ever kind of figured out what she had to say because it she used to write us when we were off to to boarding school when I was a youngster I went to military school she would send us personal she would send a type out a letter to all the kids that were off to school and then she'd send them off to everybody and then she would she would always write a little personal note at the bottom you know I love you how are you doing and how's your teeth how's your braces are they working all right and this kind of stuff and then uh, and most of that she'd write in shorthand. Well, my brother and I and half the guys in the military school were set at the end of the band at the barracks trying to figure out what in the Sam Hill mother wrote. <laughs> but, but, oh, she loved to write. She really did. She was working on, uh, uh, you know, she had wrote one. Her, one of her last books was called uh, Trials, Tears, and Triumphs, which was over a lot of the problems they had health-wise with both mom and dad and uh, and the things they were battling in their life at that point. But then she was writing one more. After dad passed away, she was writing her last kind of the last book that Dale would put out. And of course, she never got it finished. Uh, she passed away before she got it done. And she would call me up. Uh, she was in, she spent a lot of time in the hospital. She had congestive heart failure like my dad had, and she had bad lungs. And so consequently, they were we were constantly hauling her to the hospital or, or taking emergency to her. And and uh, she called me and she said, Dusty, said, you got to come down and get my book. I need it translated. And I said, okay. Uh, and she said, boy, last night, she said, I wrote probably eight or ten pages. It's the best I ever wrote. I said, okay, I'll, I'll come down and get it. I go down and get it, and I couldn't make hiding her hair of it, nor could anybody else. I mean, she had been on some kind of sleeping drug or something. Okay. I don't know. Maybe it was her best that she remembers, but I we couldn't make hiding her hair out of it. So when it when it was all said and done, we gathered everything we could and sat around the pool table there and, and at their house, all of us kids and grandkids, and we were trying to figure out what this book was trying to say, and we just didn't get enough out of it to, to be able to complete it, and I, and, and I feel bad about that, because I know she she would love to have had it be her last uh, her last go-round, but it just didn't work out. Did she have a title for it? I would, no, I, I never got a title from it. I know there was a working title uh, that that she wanted. She was it was about living without Roy, and uh, but yes, yeah, living in the service of the good Lord, and 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 enjoying the blessings that she did have, and that was of her family and and, and her grandchildren and and her friends and you know her Bible and and things that meant a lot to her. But I just I just couldn't uh, come up with enough to to come up with it. 
Do you still have it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We still have all the manuscripts here. So someday you may bump into someone who can give you... Well, the, the problem is we were able to make out some of the words and things, but it didn't make sense. You know what I mean? It's, it's mm -hmm. like it, it's like somebody like you know when they had her on pain drugs or or or, or and they had Lasix going into her intravenously mm -hmm. to get the water out of her and yeah. stuff of that. It messed up her thinking, and so she, she was knew what, she yeah. knew what she was writing. Right, and uh, I think that's the biggest. Right. That was the biggest obstacle we had with it, but. Uh, I'm, I'm so, sure it was. I'm sure it was good. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, yeah. When when you get a last treasure like that and have a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we've got it. Uh, we've got it locked up in the archives, and maybe someday somebody will give me some divine guidance on what to do yeah. with it. You know. I'm very happy to hear that. We're talking with Dusty Rogers, who is the son of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. I bet you could have figured that out all by yourself. <laughs> um, it is a recorded show. We're doing this on July 23rd, 2011, in case somebody needs a reference point down the line. Uh, Dusty, talk to me about King of the Cowboys. Where did that title come from? Well, there, the, the original, the first King of the Cowboys was uh, was Tom Mix, and how, and what they based the King of the Cowboys on it was whoever was <clears throat> the top cowboy at the time in box office ticket sales, and of course Tom Mix was one of the very early cowboys, and he was one that was outselling everybody, and so he was he was dubbed King of the Cowboys for a while. And uh, he stayed that way for quite a little bit, and then Gene and came online, and he was doing uh, some shows. He never quite made King of the Cowboys, but um, then when Dad came in uh, after Autry left the studio and really started the singing cowboy craze in Gene, Gene was the first singing cowboy, and then uh, Dad came on when John, uh, when uh, when Autry left, and um, he took it he took it to a different level, his singing and his yodeling, and uh, of course his. Ticket sales, I mean, you know, just, I mean, his first movie out, Under Western Stars, in 1938, went to number one in box office. Within about three months, it was number one, and it stayed number one. Every every one of his pictures from then on stayed number one in box office for 12 consecutive years. So in 1942, they named him King of the Cowboys, and, it, and because he retired with that being number one, it stuck. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. It really is. I, I mean, it just—it's it, inconceivable in today's entertainment industry to think of something on this level. Yeah, well, it's you know his movies, his movies at that time. If if uh, you know, it was only ten cents most of the most of the time, and even sometimes down as low as four cents. They did it in the country, and you couldn't get into town. I mean, sometimes you could get in for four to five to to nine cents to ten cents. And his movies, uh, his movies. More people went to see Roy Rogers' movies than Gone with the Wind when it came out. So it 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 was a it, it was a phenomenal thing. The numbers that he that he that he drew at that time. Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. I love it. I read that he was part Indian. That he your is. great your this would be your great great grandmother on yes. his mother's side. Mm -hmm. Right. Was, was Choctaw? Choctaw Indian, yeah. So you can claim Native American. I do. I'm very proud of it. Yeah. I love this. Yeah, I, I do. You know, and and that's well, that's you know, that's the way Dad was able to adopt Dodie, the little American Indian. Uh, one of my my sisters was the fact that Dad, and Dad adopted he and Mom adopted Dodie 
Her name was Mary Little, though, when she was full-blooded Choctaw Indian, maybe when she was just six months old. And, you know, Native Americans could not be adopted by us white folks at that time. <laughs> they mm-hmm. wouldn't allow it. But uh, but when they found out that Dad had Choctaw blood in his family line, they, man, there was no problem at all. So that's how that's how we got little Doty in the family. Uh, I really enjoy that story. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, Roy was a sportsman. Loved the outdoors. Oh boy, yes. Oh boy, yes. <laughs> Talk to me about that and whether or not that fit into family life, or whether it was something special just for him. Well, I uh, no, I uh, he was raised on a farm, of course, you know, and so he he started hunting. Uh, you know, his dad worked at the United States Shoe Company. My grandpa and. Uh, and so Dad was home. Uh, he was the only boy in the family. He had three older sisters, or two older sisters and one younger one. And he's the one that kind of had to take care of, of things when Pop was gone uh, at the shoe factory. So he learned to, sh- to shoot squirrels and possum and, you know, about anything that, that walked or crawled or flew, they they would eat, you know, in those days. I mean, you had to get some food somewhere, you know, and that's that's where they would get it. And so he, he learned to hunt and shoot at a very early age, and he made his own slingshots, and I mean, he was deadly with anything that he picked up. I mean, there were, he was just a natural-born athlete, and you can tell that by the way he rode and ran and jumped and, and did whatever, but he just loved the outdoors, always wanted to be outdoors, and he, he could train any animal to do anything. He could. He had trained raccoons. He had trained possums. I mean, he had, and he, even one day his, his mom caught him up in the loft. He had, a, he had captured a crow, and he was going to split the tongue because he'd heard that that if you split a crow's tongue, he can talk. <laughs> and Grandma chased him out of the loft, and he never got a chance to find out, but... At a very early age, loved to hunt and fish, and he never got over that. And um, and so every chance he got, uh, even when he came out to California, he hunted all over the Hollywood Hills up there where the Hollywood sign is. I mean, he killed many a raccoon up there. <laughs> uh, he used to go. He had when he and Dale married, he had thirty-five black and tan coon dogs. So that kind of give you 35? an idea. <laughs> And uh, mom went with him a couple times uh, hunting, and uh, and um, and uh, but she uh, it wasn't something she really enjoyed, so she wouldn't go anymore. But dad did everything from racing motorcycles to racing boats. Um, he had he, he had uh, 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 go karts. He had I mean anything with wheels on it or skis on it or or a motor and a prop. I mean he was all over it. And he would go anytime he he could, and then there were a lot of times that they said, "Well, Roy, you can't do that." And he says, "Listen, I'm going to be gone. You guys got to work around me." And so they would. And he made a couple trips to Africa. He went to Alaska. I went with him in 1966. We hunted moose and caribou and and wolves up there. And uh, and he's he's fished uh, in Mexico. And I mean, he's had the, the man just loved anything outdoors and he always tried to get the other cowboys to come and do things with him but they were more interested in what's going on in hollywood and so he uh he had a little hard time getting anybody else to go with him but when i was a youngster and old enough to walk We would go two weeks and go out there and just live off the land. He just uh, he just loved the outdoors and and he was a trap shooter. He was a golfer. He didn't ever care much for golf, but I mean he trap and skeet. He would shoot uh, just about anything and clay pigeons and that kind of thing. And he raised he raised his own flying pigeons and and uh, and coon dogs and uh, race horses and I mean you know it, there's no end to it. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The man just loved it. 
Did you inherit a lot of that from him? Oh, very much so. Man, when my son came along, Dustin, we were out hunting squirrels and rabbits, and and I was with him when he got his first uh, squirrel, got him with him when his first rabbit, he was with him when he got his first antelope, and we've been hunting and fishing many times together. Uh, yeah, it's 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 something that uh, you know if you're exposed to it and and you come on see on the good side of it and the conservative side of it and. And you uh, you pay your license fees and all of the things that make make it right. Uh, I mean, if it wasn't for the sportsmen of this country today, uh, with ducks unlimited and quail unlimited and dove unlimited and and all of the the, the great fishery people that keep the fish going, and if it wasn't for all of those sportsmen out there that have loved the sport but wanted to see it continue, like Dad, uh, who was he was very much uh, wanting to see things go. He was a member of Ducks Unlimited and every, you name it. Uh, to try to to keep uh, fostering more and more uh, of game in this country. And if it wasn't for sportsmen, we had already lost most of our wildlife in this country. But because of them and the NRA, we've been able to save uh, uh, a lot of our wetlands and a lot of the hunting rights so that my grandchildren, who who both hunt, both my grandsons hunt with me, and they're only seven and nine. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's an inherited thing, no doubt. You have two grandsons. Oh, I have four grandsons. You I have four grandsons four. and two granddaughters. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> my, my oldest, my oldest grandson's twenty. <laughs> um, you understand? You don't sound old enough to have a son that's twenty. <laughs> well, I, like I said, I'll be sixty-five in October, so getting older. Uh, aren't we all? Mm-hmm. Well, somebody have somebody asked me in the show the other day. He said, "How old are you?" I said, "I said, well, I'll be sixty-five. And he goes, "Wow." He says, "That's getting up there in age." I said, "Well, my dad this year would have been a hundred. How does that make you feel?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, man, that makes comeback. us all feel old now. Huh? I love that. What a great comeback. <laughs> oh, you get two stars for that one. The Roy Rogers Show, which premiered on NBC. Mm-hmm. And talk to me about the life of the show and how it you managed as a family to work, I, I don't want to say around it, but having a highly visible, highly respected, heroic show on television mm-hmm. and then a home type family life at home how did you make the two of them work well you know it's one of those things that you uh, when you understand when you, when you get everybody like, like mom and dad you know once we got all the kids you know when we he kept adopting kids and stuff and then for, for us it was who were already there it was uh, it, it was a little bit tough because you know we, we first of all we had to share dad and mom with 25 million other kids which was difficult at the time because you know you want your mom and dad you don't want to have to share them with somebody else and every time he'd go somewhere at a hospital or something kids would be hanging on him and stuff and it was a little bit hard for us to understand why he would wade into those kids but but yet not you know kind of put us behind him a little bit well we got we got the other side of him. We got the dad side at home and the fun and the, and, and the fishing and the, and the swimming and the shooting and all that kind of stuff. That's what we got at home. But when we were out, uh, he was Roy Rogers, and he was a hero to millions of kids, and we understood that. And when, when we were adopted or we were foster or whether we were whatever, we were all treated the same. Mom and Dad got us all together and said, guys, hey, whether you're adopted or natural or, or, or what, or foster child, you guys are all equal in our eyes as you are in God. So you just got to get used to what you're doing. This is the family you may not have asked to come into this family, but that's too bad. Here you are. And you got to understand that mommy and daddy are, are, are your parents, but we're also 
uh, heroes to other kids, and and we need we need they're asking for us as much as you're asking for us, and we need to split our time the best we can. And they did it. I mean, I, I how they did it, I don't know, but you know, all of us kids understood that there was a kind of an understanding that mom and dad were upfront and, and honest with us and said, you know, it's going to be tough, and it was. I mean, you know, we come home from school, and the next thing you know, we had to get dressed up in all of this Roy Rogers paraphernalia, and and they stick cameras in your face and they shoot you, you know, relentlessly for four or five hours. And then there have been weekends when we were doing merchandising shoots or we were doing post-cereal commercials or we were, you know, doing the sugar crisp or the jello pudding thing. And, and we had to do those commercials, too, because people wanted to see the Rogers family. And, you know, I mean, we, we might have liked to have gone on and played some baseball or something, but no, uh, that particular weekend, no, we got we to gotta do what we got to do. And uh, But it was never a hassle. I mean, it was never, you know, I mean, us kids probably threw a tantrum every once in a while, but we basically all knew and understood where we were where we were what was expected of us and uh, and we just did it uh, and uh, it was uh, sometimes it was fun sometimes it was a pain but uh, we got through it okay I didn't realize that you kids or you as a kid and brothers and sisters were involved on the business side of this yeah 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 we were uh, and I worked with my dad early on when I was about oh, let's see I want to say 18. 17, 18 years. I wanted to work with my dad from real early age. I wanted to work with him because dad never got off his horse long enough to really learn business. He was, uh, you know, he was a movie star and, and he, he and Trigger were on the road 29, sometimes 30 days out of a month. And so he never said, I, I never got a chance to get off my horse long enough to learn what was going on in business. Well, I could just at that age, I could see that there were guys taking advantage of him because of of the situation he was in, and so I wanted to work with him at an early age. But you know how our dads are; they, you know, all of a sudden you're just reading a lot of stuff into it. I got good people, and don't worry about it, and all that kind of stuff. So, but you know, over a period of time and a little osmosis, and especially a little later in dad's years, I was able to get in there and start working with him and uh, and getting into the business end of it. I when I was eighteen, nineteen, I worked on a. Uh, he was doing a sports sports kind of a show uh, called Let's Go Hunting with Roy Rogers, and I was working on the editing and f- filming and doing that kind of thing with that. But uh, it wasn't until later that uh, that he uh, he kind of ran out of some of the people that he was working with because of uh, poor business practices, and I started working with him on and off to just come in there and help him when I could. But he usually had pretty good people around him. But, uh, the, you know, it's real easy to take advantage of a situation when – when the principal is out there on his horse uh, in front of a camera and you're back there handling his money. So it's a little bit different situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really but we all got it, you know, we all, not all of us, but uh, myself especially. I've been working for Dad since I uh, started working with him way back in the early 80s and uh, and I worked with him you know, the whole time up until he passed away. He worked at top speed and top income at a time when income tax was at a top outgo. Would you talk about that for a couple of minutes? The income tax, pardon? Oh, yeah, yeah. In, income tax. A in, lot of income in, but a lot of income tax out. Oh, yeah. Well, the government's one of those things that, uh, that, that um, and, I, and I've been having a hard time with our government in the last few days. <laughs> Uh-oh. This is a good time to talk to you. <laughs> But the government, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, my dad at one time, and whether it was fair or not, I don't think it was, but it was at a time when our country needed 
some help, I guess, there financially or whatever, which we seems like we've always had to. But uh, my dad was in a 92% income bracket. And a lot of people don't understand that, but 92 cents out of every dollar my dad made in the 40s and 50s went to the government. And to me, it was like it was like the government is kind of like having a, a partner in your back pocket that sits there in your wallet the whole time. Um, the government didn't come and help him. I mean, he went to work with the government raising millions of dollars on the war bond during the war. Uh, he clawed and worked his way up himself physically and mentally and raised kids and adopted kids and was heroes to millions. And the government didn't help at all. I mean, all they did was take their whatever, and Dad was glad to pay it because he was making it, you know. But then um, later on, I mean, it gets down to the point where Dad got to, after he retired and wasn't making that kind of money, they're still demanding quite a bit of money from him. And he just said, I, every time I go out to do a job, I come back and uh I'm working for the government. I'm not making anything myself. I, I, it's not worth me getting out there more. And I think that's what that's what ruins a lot of people in this country who could give so much back to this country with their knowledge and their experience. Uh, a lot of the seniors who are being forced out of uh, uh, into retirement and they're not ready for it, uh, and uh, and they could give so much back, but they get disgruntled about it because of the tax situation that, that hits them that and they and, and they can't and nobody wants to work for the government I mean unless you're getting a paycheck from them mm-hmm. but to work for the government and then pay them too I mean come on I mean, what kind of business deal is that so I it's always been kind of a sore spot with me that the government and and and, and why it's that way is when mom and dad died they, they had the death tax was still there and they came after us big time um, after mom and dad died and it was just horrendous and you know, they want their money in nine months, and they they want it cash. They don't want anything else. And I mean, it's just it's not fair to the families that you know that mom and dad want to leave. We all want to leave a little something behind for our kids. But when you can't do it because of the taxes um, and, and the death taxes and different things, that's just not right. I mean, they've already paid taxes on that money, and uh, and now they're gonna now the family who inherits it's got to pay. 35 to 55 percent of what they get back to the government mm-hmm. and I see what they're doing with some of it and I you know I'm, I'm to the point where uh, you know somebody asked me at my show here a week or so ago I said Dusty what do you think's wrong and I'll probably get a lot of hate mail on this but said, what's right what do you think's wrong with this country I said the problem with this country is that the guy in the Oval Office doesn't wear cowboy boots anymore that's the problem and we just need to get back to some basic common sense uh, way of doing things. And until, until the government people, uh, us, I mean the government people who run, try to run our lives, until we finally say enough's enough, and uh, and uh, you know all get together and say, you know, hey, we have to live within our means. The government has to too, and and you guys figure it out because you're not getting any more money till you do. Then you know we, we we're going to be in trouble in the future. But I think I think common sense hopefully will will come forward and and we'll get off. Everybody will get off their high horse and and think about what's good for all of us uh, in, instead of just uh, what's politically right and left and up and down and Republican and Democrat and whatever. We're Americans. We're, we, you know, we hire these people to do a good job for us, and uh, they're not doing their job. So if I wasn't doing my job, I'd be recalled or I'd get laid off, and I think that's what we need to do, <laughs> get, rid of, get rid of all the politicians and start all over again. I don't know where we're going to go with this. I don't know how to do it and you know what i guess looking at 
like a spreadsheet. You start at the right side and see where you want to go, and then you work backwards on yeah. how you can get there. Mm -hmm. So we know where we want to go. Now we have to start working backwards and figuring right. out well, it's just, how it's, to set out the plan. It's got to be majorly frustrating for everybody, and especially the older folks, you know, the, the, folk, the people who are retired, who could, like I said earlier, could do so much and help because they've lived it. But yet, you know, everybody seems to want to run to their own drummer and not not pay attention. You know, the problem with America is we don't learn from our mistakes. We we go and repeat them, repeat them, repeat them. I you know, I mean, when I was a kid, and I I said, Dad, is the, is that stove hot? And he said, Stick your hand on it and find out. You only do it one time. Mm -hmm. And uh, but yet, no, oh, you know, we just keep sticking our hand on the on the oven and I, in the oven. And I just I don't understand it. I just don't. Most most Americans. Uh, have common sense, and and I, the biggest problem we have in this country is apathy. Uh, not only amongst ourselves, but amongst uh, the, the young people of this country. I mean, the, the, when the 18-year-olds get a right to vote, and and 89% of them don't. I mean, because they just don't feel that they need to or want to. I mean, this is a sad state of affairs, and uh, and the rest of us we sit around uh, wondering what we're going to do. Well, I mean, you know, to do nothing. You know, is 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 the worst thing you can do. So, just need to make a little more noise. I tell everybody in the audience when they ask me about that, I said, you know, everybody make a little bit of noise. You know, you're a voice. I'm a voice. They're a voice. We can just look them together. We'll have many voices, but mm -hmm. not as long as we sit there and let people run over us. No, it's not going to work. So we need to get vocal, and and that's why we have a political system, and and just uh, put it in the good Lord's hands, but make noise at the same time. You know, I can't help you if you don't help yourself. You know. And recognize one vote counts. Yeah, right. You've got one person clapping in the audience can make uh -huh. an awful lot of noise when the whole audience goes. Yeah, absolutely. It's just one at a time. Absolutely. I want to talk to you about working on the set. Did you ever get to go on any of the sets with your oh, dad, Oh, many Mom? times. Many times. I got a lot of pictures of, of me when I was, no, oh, three, four years old. In fact, I, my first five birthdays I spent on the, on the Republic lot. Um, Dad would have a big birthday party for me on the on the Republic Studios lot, and they'd have a cake, and you know, they'd, I'd be dressed in all the Western attire, and I'd come down there and terrorize the place for a couple of days. And <laughs> but uh, that's where I learned to drink coffee when I was a kid. My they didn't have anything for anybody on the set for kids because there wasn't any kids on the set at that particular time. So my dad would make coffee, you know, a half coffee and half cream, and another couple of spoons of sugar, and that's where I started drinking coffee when I was three years old. So. Uh, Oh gosh, that's a great story. <laughs> I love that. But uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time. My favorite, my favorite uh, character in, in the, on the movie lot was the fellow who ran the boom mic, the one that kind of stretched out over the top of the actor. Yeah. But, yeah, I'd sit there and crank that thing back and forth, and it was just I had the best time with him. So did yeah, I spent a lot of time. A lot did of time. he have a good time with you? Oh yeah. Well, I think I think I made too much noise. Most of the time, you know, I was I was a talker at that time, and and I think I I ruined a lot of different scenes for Dad. I'm sure. So. That's fun. Who who were friends with your mom and dad, or who who did they call friends who were associated with the industry? Well, there was quite a few, and I think most of them were you know because my mom and dad were um, and they weren't overly religious persons, but they were they, you know they they never preached at anybody, but they. Everybody knew where they, you know, how they stood with the good Lord and what their standings were as for in the Christian community. And so, you know, the people that believed in that also were a lot of their friends. And of course, a lot of the religious leaders were 
you know, like Billy Graham, and uh, you know, they were all all close to them. But the people that kind of hung out at the house a lot were a lot of his fellow actors, you know, fellows that worked in the movie business with him, and uh, who were also Christians. Mom and Dad helped start a group called the Hollywood Christian Group, which was unheard of in those days. Um, that you could have uh, a Christian uh, uh, relationship in Hollywood going on at the same time. But uh, they uh, they were very strong, and you know Dinah Shore and her, and her husband, and I mean there were just tons of people uh, um, uh, that mom and dad worked with down through the years that uh, would come out to the house and play badminton, or um, you know just come out and just hang around, swim, play pool, whatever. But uh, you know a lot of different different ones, uh, but most of them had to do with the Hollywood Christian group and Sons of the Pioneers, of course. How interesting! Who played badminton? Uh, Dad loved to play badminton. I mean, he was a, he was a tiny terror at that boy. He just he I don't know if you ever seen him play at the badminton or not, but it is a funny sport for big guys to play. It is. You, you got know. this little birdie going. Yeah, back. yeah, running around whacking a little bird. I couldn't get quite hang of it myself, but uh, they seemed to like it. I mean, I always I always liked the tennis part of it because I could whack the ball and knock it over a wall, but uh, yeah. I didn't care much for that that little uh, shuttlecock or whatever they call it. it That's exactly it. Yeah. It, little, little but Dad loved it. I mean, and so did the guys. I mean, they come out. It's funny to watch, you know, uh, <laughs> George Montgomery and Dad and Buddy Bear at that time. and you know, These big guys running around in, in their shorts and tennis shoes with no shirt on playing and whacking a little... <laughs> a little bird all over the backyard. It was it was fun to watch, but they loved it. <laughs> that is really funny. Um, did you ride and rope, or do you ride and rope? I don't ride anymore because I'm I'm, I'm like my dad now. Being I'll be 65 here shortly, and I and I and when I fall off a horse now, I don't jump and roll and or, or, or run. I I just hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the ground hurts. <laughs> uh, yes, it's not. And I have and it. I have too many people that depend on me for paychecks. So I don't oh. I don't get out there and ride much anymore. But when I was a kid, oh yeah, I mean I had a horse named California. Looked just like he was kind of a stand-in for Trigger. He was a beautiful horse, and uh, I would ride him an awful lot. Trail riding, different things. I did a little bit of rodeo when I was younger, but uh, didn't didn't do well at that. So. Uh, but I did. I did like to ride and, uh, and did quite a bit of that. But I don't do it anymore. Did you learn how to rope? Yeah, I was roping the calves all the time. You know, my dad. You know, being the the, the, the consummate hero and the guy that always tells the truth. And when I was a young boy, we had a calf born, and Dad said, "Now, son, if you come out here every day and you pick that calf up and you lift him up over your head at least five times every day, that uh, when he grows up, you'll be able to still pick him up." Well, it didn't take six weeks before <laughs> before I found out that you don't mess with a bull trying to pick him up to push him over your head, especially when he gets to <laughs> and uh, being a two thousand pound bull will take your head off after a while. So, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I I I did all that. I was you know used to speed tie, so you know I do a little heading and healing, or what they call it, and roping and stuff. But uh-huh. but I never was into the rodeo sports much. I I enjoyed doing it on the ranch, but. Uh, it's not something I took out into my life afterward. How about your brothers or sisters? No, they didn't do any, you know, any uh, that type of thing. My my brother Sandy, he didn't care much for 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 that kind of thing. Uh, he was more into playing army and uh, uh, with his army men and doing different things like that. He didn't uh, uh, he didn't like the the ranch life too much. He had, his mind was somewhere else. <laughs> he just wanted to play all the time. Sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> Did you ever ride trigger? 
Oh, many times, yeah. We couldn't take him out on any long rides anywhere because uh, he was in constant training, and we didn't, and they didn't want him injured somewhere. You know, if we run him into the street and he gets hit by a truck, that would end production. You know, so uh, we could ride him around the paddock there and a little bit around the ranch, but no, uh, nothing in any length of time or or duration. Did he have a stand-in? Dad had a stand-in. Uh, your dad or Trigger, both of them had. Either one of them. Both yeah, of them. Uh, yeah, both of them did. Uh, dad. Had uh, had one of his cousins. He had a name, a fellow named Stan Sly, who was uh, one of Dad's cousins, first cousins. And Stan was um, uh, looked an awful lot like Dad. They were the same height, same build, and so he would, stood in for Dad a lot. And when they were setting cameras and when they were pulling distance and stuff like on him to get it focusing right and things. And he also had a stunt man named Joe Irgoyne that uh, that did a lot of the stunts because when he started making money for the studios. They didn't want him to get hurt because, again, would end production. So he still had to do his fight scenes and his jumping on and off a trigger and stuff, doing the crouper mounts and different things. But he couldn't; uh, they wouldn't let him jump from a runaway rig onto the back of runaway horses, uh, you know, because that's a highly, highly dangerous stunt. And so they uh, uh, they brought in a, a stunt man for him, but uh, he didn't. Dad did most all of his uh, horse stuff himself. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm impressed. And then, well, Trigger had a stand-in too. I mean, if there was a if there was a fight scene between two horses, or if a stuntman had to jump Trigger off of a cliff into the water, they brought in a horse called Little Trigger. He's a little smaller, a little thicker head, uh, neck, and uh, but he uh, he was a stunt horse. He would do anything, and uh, and so uh, if he got kicked in the head or broke a foot or something like that with fighting another horse, there was at least you wouldn't lose production because Trigger was still there to yeah. To do it, so yeah, they did. They did all that kind of stuff, so just to protect production. Would be a catastrophe if no, oh, one oh, of yeah. them got hurt. Well, I mean, mind. Dad yeah. would. I mean, he couldn't go anywhere without having Trigger with him. The kids would get so upset if he didn't bring Trigger with him. So yeah. Um, gee, in in the beginning, when your dad was first starting to make movies, did he have a stunt man for the first couple of movies? Or no, did he do no, he own? did. He did most all of his own stunts all from very early on. Uh, <laughs> Because at that point he was still expendable. Uh, they didn't know what he was going to do or how yeah. he was going to do. But being as his first movie went to box office, uh, went to number one in box office right away, uh, and then the second picture came out and it went to number one. And they got the time they got into the third, they they quit. They they, they said no more of the, of the stunt work, Roy. You know we got to protect you here. So that was good. Yeah, that oh, yeah. was a very good thing to do. <laughs> uh, when you were in school. How did the kids around you react when they realized who your dad and mom were? Well, mostly uh, terrible. <laughs> terrible and well, you know, well, you know how kids are; they're brutally honest, you know. And so, the one thing that I really hated in, in school was uh, uh, they call roll in those days, you know. Mm-hmm. And they get down; they call different people and. Uh, and they get down to my name, and they say Roy Rogers Jr. And of course, all of the chairs, oh, they turn around and look at me, and they say, Oh, wow, you don't look like a horse, you know. And they were, and and I never got picked for the first in any any games. I was always, you know, they always picked everybody else and ignored me totally. And uh, I ended up playing jack, you know, a jump rope with the girls and playing jacks with the girls because I couldn't <laughs> get the boys to get anything on me. So um, it was tough uh, for a few years. I got kicked out of kindergarten twice for fighting. And, and, In kindergarten? Huh? Kindergarten. Yeah, I started then. Yeah, there was a kid. Yeah, you know, we were working with blocks, you know, and some kids down the way said that Gene Autry was the was a better uh, horseman and better cowboy. Well, 
and then they slid their block down, knocked mine, what I was doing over. Well, that started. I just picked the block up and went after him, and, and so I got kicked out then, and I got kicked out one more time, and my dad said, son, if I got to come down here one more time, he said, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to turn you every way but loose. I said, okay, Dad, well, I'll try. But, uh, yeah, it was it was a rough go for a while. Wow. I think that's why we ended up going, my brother and I ended up, because of the schooling thing, when I went on the military school where it's all, all fellas and uh, and military regiment and, and discipline and things like that. So we, we spent quite a bit of time in military school, which was which was good for both of us, good, great character building and stuff. But... And we didn't have to mess with the girls. They didn't, you know, and, and the nasty innuendos because everybody was under strict orders to be, everybody was a cadet, period. You know, so that worked out pretty well. See, that was, it, it was a mirror of home where everybody was a kid no matter where you came yeah, from. right. Mm -hmm. You belonged to this group. Right. Wow. Um, did you like military school? I loved it. Oh, yeah. My brother didn't care much for it. He, he, he loved the military, and he loved Civil War. He loved everything there was about the Civil War. He could tell you everything there was about it. He studied it pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. And so all he thought about was going into the military, going into um, uh, into the Army is what he wanted to go into. But he had a lot of difficult problems when he was younger. He was um, When Dad adopted him and out of Covington, Kentucky, he had never slept in a bed. Uh, he lived in a uh, an orphanage and was laying in it. He spent most of his childhood sleeping in a chair. Wow. And so he had curvature of the spine and he had a deviated septum because the matron at the at the orphanage hit him across the, the nose with a bottle, baby bottle, because he dropped one. And and uh, so I mean, he just had a rough, uh, rough life. His parents abandoned him when he was just a baby and he spent five years in, a, in an orphanage. So it was not, it was not a good thing. And so, you know, all of his life he was a little bashful, a little backwards, and physically uh, he he was hurting. You know, he just he couldn't quite catch up with anybody, and and so I was kind of his guardian, and uh, and you know watched over him pretty much. And anybody messed with him, they had to mess with me, and so it worked out really well that we were both together in the same school, and, and you know where I could keep an eye on him. And of course everybody's equal in military school. You know, they just you know there's not much of a pecking order. You're a pretty big guy. Well, I, I try to be, but you know, again, uh, I, luckily I grew into a pretty good-sized guy. I uh, I grew up to be six foot four, and weigh right now I'm six foot four and weigh 240 pounds. So I'm I, I'm still uh, not a, not a, a force to be reckoned with. I'll turn that over to my son, who is six foot five. <laughs> <laughs> I let him handle it. But when I was younger, yeah, I, uh, they didn't mess with me much. Once I got big enough, I, uh, kind of that all that kind of went away. Gee whiz. No, I wouldn't mess with you either. This, this is good. I read a story about your dining room table, mm -hmm. your family dining room table. Where right. did it come from? That was made by a, a dinosaur's husband, uh, uh, George Montgomery, who was a, an actor in Hollywood, did, did a lot of Western movies. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, Roy, you got all these kids. He said, you know, it kind of must be kind of hard to sit at the dining room table and talk to them all. And Dad says, well, yeah, it's a, we had a long rectangular table, and, you know, sometimes you couldn't see the kids down on the end. So George says, well, I'm going to make you a table for your family. And he was a beautiful woodworker. I mean, this guy can make anything. And he made this beautiful pine table. It was all round, and it, we could seat all of us kids and mom and dad and and all around the table in round and we could see each other right next to us or right across the table from us everybody was right there and they put a lazy susan in the middle of it uh that that and of course you know our dinners were always served family style there wasn't any individual plate served you just it was all put up there in big bowls and everybody kind of 
just dipped out of what they wanted, and and uh, you had to serve yourself. And the same with the milk and everything else. You had to learn early on that uh, if you don't feed yourself, ain't nobody going to feed you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he made this beautiful table, and my brother and I, we mom and mom would always uh, – have us fold our hands, you know, and uh, and say grace, and then we'd go around the table, and she said, I want each one of you kids to say one thing that you're thankful for, and we'd all go around and we'd mutter something, you know. And uh, so my brother and I figured out that if we, while we were saying grace, then we could we could put our thumb on the lazy Susan, we could reach it with our hands, with our hands folded, and we could rotate, while everybody had their head down and not looking, we could rotate the mashed potatoes around to our side, because, you know, it's one of those things, you know, you, hey, pass the butter quick, Dickie, before Bert gets a swipe at it. That's one of those things. If you don't get it first, by the time it comes to you, there might not be anything in there. So my brother and I would, would work the potatoes around so we get the first shot at the mashed potatoes and gravy. And my mom <laughs> caught us caught us at it one time. She looked up and saw us doing it. So from then on, my mom said, okay, kids, from now on, we will not fold our hands. We will hold hands and say grace. <laughs> <laughs> that ended that ended our our one little ace in the hole my brother and I thought we had for a little while. <laughs> oh gosh, that's a great story. I, I do uh, like that. It was a great it was a great table though, it really was. It, it sounds like yeah. it. How often did you have dinner as a family? Oh, every night. Every night. Every night that mom and dad were there, and of course, even when they weren't, the help would uh, that were taking care of us make us. We all had to sit. At five o'clock was dinner, and we and and there was no exception. You were home at five, and if dad would come out, he'd holler out there. He said, "You know, if you're my kids, come in. If you ain't, go home." <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we'd all come in, and uh, we'd all sit around and hold and say grace, and then we all talked about what's going on. You know, typical American family at that time. You know, hey, you know, how was school today? You know, how things going? You know, and did you? play this or did you do that or mom and dad you know were very interested in in you know how the grades were and of course it, it was a really blue time when all of the report cards would come out because then everybody didn't want to give up what they were getting on their report cards but we all knew we had to face the we had to face the inspector general sooner or later so we'd all put our report cards in a bowl and put them around and run them toward dad you know and we all knew we were going to catch it if we didn't get if we didn't get really good grades but uh but it was yeah, it was family time. It was dinner time, and everybody uh, talked about their day. And and today, I mean, I, I don't think even families seem to sit together and eat. Uh, it's amazing to me. I, I mean, think that was a big that was a big part of our day. You know, we enjoyed and you know, we loved to hear what the other kids were doing, and we loved to hear what mom and they would explain what they're doing, where they were going to go, how long they were going to be gone, and you know, it was just a family time. But uh, there's not not too much of that anymore. I just love hearing this and knowing that people who had so many challenges in the time department were able to do this. Right, and even if they weren't there, it still was a goal. I mean, uh, we had uh, they had uh, people that took care of us when they were gone, mm -hmm. and it was the same thing. Kids uh, were at the table, and and the and the, the nannies or whoever was there, they would sit right with us, and uh, and we would hold hands, we would say grace, and we would start to talk, just like if mom and dad were there. And so, yeah, it was a it was a time when family got together. Period, and there was no excuses. And even my my teenage uh, sisters couldn't get away with, oh, I got a date tonight because uh, you sat at the table and you ate, whether you ate hamburgers at three or you have dinner later on. You sat at that table and you ate, or at least had something to eat and talk with the family. So, it was an important thing. 
was an important thing, not only for mom and dad, because they felt, you know, you feel like you're a family that way. You feel mm-hmm. like you're, and you feel that somebody's interested in what you're doing. And I think today everybody's over texting or messaging or, you know, and nobody gets, nobody talks about anything. And, and so a lot of things that need to be, need to be talked about, they don't get touched on. And so you end up going through life thinking, well, he, he didn't really care about it because he didn't even ask me. You know, so and it's a bad thing, it, it's, you know, for American for American families that they're not getting together. My mom always said, you know, when the American family starts to deteriorate in this country, we're in real trouble. And I see it more and more every year, and it worries me more and more every year. My family, Linda and I, we get together at 5 o'clock every day. We have dinner, and we sit there, and each and I, each, and the two of us talk. And it was the same when we had the kids. They, at 5 o'clock, you ate dinner. So, you know. The only day we wouldn't we wouldn't do that would be Sunday because Sunday well, mom wouldn't cook that was her day off and she didn't want to cook and so we would all go to dinner after lunch or after church and then from then on uh, the rest of the evening uh, you're on your own buddy you get a you can either eat a bowl of cereal or or a bag of marshmallows we don't care just you know <laughs> take care of it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you kids had a vacation too. You yeah. Oh, it was fun though. Bag of marshmallows for dinner. It sounds cool to me. When when you say you would go out to dinner after church, you mm-hmm. were out in a restaurant. Yeah, we we would go to um, we went to uh, uh, a place when we lived in the San Fernando Valley. There was a, a little place, a Scandinavian kind of a buffet, kind of a dinner. Called and it was Scandinavian and it was also American. You could get and it was called the Chicken Castle and we would go there and uh, and the, and they always had a big long table for all of us kids and uh, and help that would go along with us and uh, every Sunday right after church we'd show up and uh, and go fill our place up with food and Dad would pay the bill and <laughs> we were gone the rest of the day. Were you able to do that without being interrupted? No. No. How, how did you <laughs> well, the minute the minute people recognized who Roy and Dale were, it was luckily luckily uh, at that particular time uh, the, the, where we lived, we lived in Encino, California, and the, and the people were very understanding, especially the folks that were regulars. They knew who they were, and they would never bother them. It's just when you once in a while you get uh, you know somebody that's visiting or something and get all excited, and they they just can't stand it they, to let Roy and Dale eat. They'd come up with a napkin and say, you know, I hate to bother you, but. But, <laughs> and dad would be very nice. He'd say, honey, he says, look, I'm here with, with my family having lunch. We're right in the middle of it. Why don't you just wait for a little while when I'm done eating? Um, you know, uh, you, you can either bring it back up to me or I'll come over to your table and I'll sign it. You know, but right now we're just having lunch. And most people were very understanding and, and some people weren't. You know, they'd wad up their paper and say, well, if you're not too lazy to sign it, I don't want it kind of an attitude. Mm-hmm. But, but dad was always very cordial and very congenial with them and and, uh, and tried to be as nice as he could, you know. Yeah. Respectful of, of both sides. He right, respected right. the family and he respected the And most people, family. most people left him alone, you know, they, they, especially when you're eating. You don't want to walk up on somebody and yeah. have a mouthful of food and say, you know, hey, can you sign this for me? And, yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to interrupt you, but. Yeah, that's always the but. Yeah, Dad says always a but, yeah. Did anyone ever truly ask the question we hear about, are you who I think you are? Oh, all the time. Really? Yeah. In fact, I had. <laughs> it's the same story here a long time. And one guy came up to Dad. That we were at. Uh, Dad and I were going to Cincinnati, Ohio, to do a open a Roy Rogers restaurant. And this was probably in the, I want to say early 70s, maybe mid 70s. And uh, 
we were at the airport in the, um, the United Big Lounge, you know, where you, you can go and get away from your upstairs in the, I don't know what they call it, blue room or whatever. And some businessman is sitting there, and uh, and he's just across reading his paper and drinking some coffee. And he's looking, he kept looking at Dad, looking at Dad, looking at Dad. And finally he put his paper down, and he leaned over, and he said, uh, he said, are you, uh, are you, uh, boy, you look awful familiar. He said, uh, uh, are you somebody? And Dad said, well, I don't know. Am I? And he goes, well... He said, you look an awful lot like a guy that uh, used to be on TV a few years ago. I can't. Dad said, Roy Rogers? And he goes, no, no, that ain't it. You get, you know, he's had it all. You know, you know. Are you somebody? That's what. That's the one that kills me. Oh, are you yeah. somebody? Are, are you somebody? Are you somebody? Well, yeah, I am. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, oh yeah, sure. People will, you know, open mouth and insert foot every once in a while. But that's just human. You know, that's human nature, and you're going to get it. You yeah, know? Uh, and it sounds like you were all very tolerant and considerate about it. You know. You well, I mean, Dad said, you know, look. And you have to look at it this way. If if uh, you might have the worst day in the world, I mean, you might be everything going wrong with you. You know, you're not feeling good. You know, you got a bad tooth, or you got something, you know, or that's bothering you. And and somebody comes up to you, you got to light your eyes up, and you got to be congenial, and you got to be nice because just because you're having a bad day, you don't need to give them a bad one. So you 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 just you know you suck it up and you do what. Is expected of you as a person, and, and like you would do with anybody, and uh, and then go back to your misery after they leave. So yeah, yeah. Tell me the two greatest lessons you learned from Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Well, there's a lot of different ones. Um, I, I learned from my dad probably probably the greatest lesson I learned from him was humility and and the art of of probably loving God's lesser uh, uh, or humankind's lesser uh, people that that have had I, I, to give you an example the, be, the best example of, of the kind of man that Roy is or was and the kind of man I wanted to be was in Covington, Kentucky um, we, we had done a show in Lexington and Dad had called around he always had always in his shows the first few rows of seats were always saved for kids either from orphanages or from hospitals or wherever they could bring them from never for the never for the parade board or the or the the, the uh, county board or anything like that the fair board it was always for kids and the first thing he'd do when he come into town he wouldn't get on the phone he'd call out to these different orphanages and hospitals and invite the kids in and say, you know, I have free seats for them. Please bring them if, they can, if you can bring them. And, uh, and uh, he called out to the blind school uh, where the little kids were blind and uh, said, can you bring the kids out? And I said, Roy, man, we'd love to do that. We really would. But the kids are, as long as they're in an environment that they understand and they can visually, you know, visually in their mind see, they're they're at ease. But if we take them away from here and get them out to into an area that they're not familiar with, they get panicked and they get worried and they they become unruly and they don't know what where they're at or what they're doing. And I think it would be just too upsetting. And Dad said, "Well, that's fine. Then we'll we'll come to you." And so, man, when we got into town, Dad grabbed the Pioneer and Trigger and, and all of us kids, and we went out there and stood on the lawn 
uh, and played and sang songs to a whole bunch of kids that are sitting in front of us, um, blind. Now they can't see us, but they hear us, but they don't, they can't quite make out, you know, who it is. And so dad, being the kind of man he was, he stops the show. He's, wait a minute, guys. He said, just a minute. And he got down off that little riser we were on on the grass, and he got down on his hands and knees, and he stayed on his knees, and he kind of crawled in front of each one of those little kids that were sitting on a little block of wood and let him, he pulled out his pistol, and he let them feel his face and his hat and and his gun, and then in their in their, their eyes would just light up because they knew in front of them was Roy Rogers, that because they felt and knew who he was. And I'm thinking today, how many artists today would take the time uh, to do that and so uh, that's just one of many times that I, I that's the lesson I said that's the kind of guy that I want to be and, and people say what were the lessons that he taught you or said to you and I said his lessons were never taught to me his lessons were I learned from just observing him just watching him uh, how he was with other people and I uh, said so that's that's one of the greatest lessons that I learned was that uh, you know, when you when you, you think you're, uh, my mom used to say, I may I probably shouldn't say it on radio, but <laughs> mom used to say, son, no matter how big of a person you think you are, everybody has to sit on the great white throne at least once a day. <laughs> so I learned things from osmosis with my dad. Now my mother, the greatest, the, probably the greatest thing was, uh, again, the humility, but uh, a Christian attitude toward anything that comes at you. I don't care if it's the loss of a child. Um, if it's a physical admirality, admirality that you have, a, 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 a you know something that's just you think is devastating that you can't handle it, um, and that if things couldn't get any worse, that all you have to do is turn your eyes upward and quit looking at the ground and and look up for the you know everybody gets down and out sometimes and say God isn't listening to me, He doesn't care about me, He's not talking to me, I don't hear Him, I, He's not there. And uh, and sometimes, you know, we're looking in the wrong place or we're not listening because uh, because of the situation we're in. And, uh, and But he's there. Sometimes we just don't listen right. We don't look right. I heard a thing on the radio uh, from a young, well, I guess it was on one of the talk shows. It was a young lady who, and this would fit me so well. It fit my, I wish my mother was here to hear her because I, this was exactly what my mom used to talk to me about. She said, son, we ask sometimes too much uh, from God and he will only give it to us if he thinks it's worth giving us to that it will make a difference in our lives and the people around us and so for selfish in our asking it's not going to happen um, and so we, we look we look for that answer instead of the little things in life that God does show us and give us because we're always looking up we never think to look down and this young lady was on the show saying you need to look down you need to look for the pennies in life you know how many times have we walked down the street and saw Penny in the street and just walked over like, hey, I'm not going to bother to pick it up. I thought, you know, what, I'm not going to stoop over and get my hands dirty by picking up a penny. It's useless anyway. But we need to think about it. And, and, and you try this at home sometime. You, you walk around during the day, and I guarantee you, if you're out there in the world at all, you will find a penny somewhere on the ground, somewhere uh, if you're looking for it. But if you're looking up all the time, you'll never see it. And her point was is that we need to look for those pennies in life, like uh, like family, uh, like your wife or your husband or your, or your sweetheart or whatever. These are the little things in life that we take so much for granted because they're there. 
and we don't look for the blessings, and we always look for gimme, gimme, gimme. And uh, so, it, you know, that's why I always start my prayers, you know, if it be thy will, Lord, please do this or do that or the other. But if it's not his will, it isn't going to happen, and that's that's our problem is we don't we, we expect too much, too soon, too fast, and, and you know we're, we're and the way the communications are today, we want instant gratification. God doesn't work that way, and uh, and so that's I think Mom taught me more than anything is patience, to wait on the Lord and listen for Him, and uh, and, uh, and 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 use that in everything you do in life. Don't ever fly off the handle. Uh, and, and, and because it does nobody good, and it just embarrasses you. So those are the two, probably the two of the strongest things that I learned from both parents. Those are great lessons. I heard a pastor talk one time about asking God and not being answered, and the the answer was um, sometimes the answer is no. He yes. always answers, but sometimes the answer is no. Absolutely, absolutely. I love that. Yeah. And, and you know, God, God knows our, God knows every hair on our head. He knows every sparrow that flies. He knows what our future is. And we can alter it. We can alter it by not following his, his uh, things he expects from us. But he knows where we're going. And if it's, if we ask for something that's going to get in the way of that, he's not going to grant it. You know, it's just not going to happen. You're his. <laughs> he doesn't want his children to going off the deep end. So if he's going to give you something, it's something that he thinks is going to benefit you mm-hmm. in the future. So. And that's what you live by. Yep, absolutely. You live by that. And you, you brought your children up that way. Yep. And your grandchildren are influenced too. Absolutely. Love it. Yeah. Just love it. I don't want to move on to another area um, unless I touch base about the restaurant chain. Oh, yeah, huh? Which is an extraordinary business. It was, but luckily my dad was kind of, he was both, more than anything else, he was a spokesperson for them. Um, the company that had the restaurants, they, they were, it was called the Marriott Corporation. You know, Marriott's a mm-hmm. huge, big hotel. And uh, Bill Marriott um, had a, a, a string of restaurants that he bought where they were called Roby's, and they were uh, over in California and a few others on the East Coast. And um, he, he wanted to make them a national chain. He wanted to bring them up like Bob's Big Boy, you know, that, uh, uh, the chain out there, the Cal- of the um, uh, hamburger restaurants. Mm-hmm. But he wanted them to be roast beef. And he thought, what is roast beef other than really a cowboy, you know, over an open spit and stuff like that? We, and so we need a cowboy spokesman. Well, uh, Robert Wayne, who owned, who owned uh, Bob Wayne, who opened, uh, uh, who opened uh, Bob's Big Boy, knew Dad, and he knew Bill, and Bill had talked to him, and said, do you know anybody that, that might be interested in doing these Western-style, uh, ch- uh, chuck wagon-style uh, roast beef restaurants with me, who would be my spokesperson? And he said, the only guy that I know of that you should ever put know anything about the restaurant business and they said well you really don't have to all you need to do is be our spokesperson let us put your name on the restaurants however you will be very involved with the product development and things like that because dad said if you're going to put my name on this thing then i've got to have um, uh, some protection in case you get sued and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. on the other hand i would love to uh, delve a little bit into uh, the product development, which was, ended up being like Pappy Parker's chicken, Dad developed all of that with them on the on the on the the, the, um, the secret ingredients that went on that, and the double R bar burger and all that kind of stuff. He developed uh, with Dad through Marriott. So 
he was more of a sports spokesperson. And at one time, there's like 660 or 670 restaurants nationwide, uh, you know. But uh, like anything else, it just things moved on, and I got McDonald's got stronger, and roast beef kind of dropped off, and uh, which you know, and and so uh, the the changes finally it got sold to Hardee's, and then Hardee's sold it to some outfit up in Canada, and so I think there's still a few left out on the turnpike going from New York to uh, to Florida, but uh, we have nothing to do with them at this point. Are you, even though the name is still on the, I'll, I'll say marquee, on the, on the front of the building. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. very much so. I mean, uh, the people that, the franchisees that bought franchises uh, just loved Roy, and, and we went to some of the greatest uh, get-togethers uh, uh, when they would have those conventions and uh, and meet with those people. And those are the folks who still own one and still call it Roy Rogers. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Is there still the same quality control as when your dad was involved? Uh, yeah, very much so, because they're the uh, people who started with those restaurants still have them, and, they, and the quality control was the name of the game back in those days. That was a different time and different era, you know. So they still care. I want to, in just a minute, I want to go into... Your life, your professional life, your books, your mm-hmm. CDs, I mean, you are just you are just incredible. But before we go there, it's July 26th. It's Christmas in July. Do you have a Christmas story for us? Oh, boy, I got a lot of different ones. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, when you, got, when you got as many kids, you know, Mom and Dad had nine kids, you know, four adopted, one foster, and the rest of us, his and yours and us and ours kind of family. And we ranged in age from... Six and a half months old up to 19 years old, so it, it, it was quite a run of kids. But uh, uh, you can imagine what a nightmare Christmas was was around our house. I mean, my dad was the biggest kid in the world, and so anytime he'd buy kid, toys for us kids, he'd be playing with them for two weeks before we ever got them. I mean, he bought, <laughs> he bought my dad, he bought my, uh, my brother and I go karts for Christmas one year, and we could hear him running around down below in the in the barn, but and running the heck out of them. But uh, we didn't get them, and when we got them, they were all dirty and. He said, Santa didn't clean these off, Dad. He said, well, he didn't have time. But, but there, the one story that um, that I can tell you uh, as far as a funny one goes on Christmas time, because there's a lot of them, but um, my mom, you know, being the religious person she was, she wanted to be sure that us kids understood the real meaning of Christmas and that it isn't just gifts and it isn't just that kind of cookies and all that kind of stuff. It's the birth of Christ child. So she had been to the Holy Land a couple different times, but she brought back a beautiful nativity set um, made out of olive wood from the Mount of Olives. And uh, she would set it up every year. We had kind of a, uh, we kind of had a, um, uh, an altar kind of a thing that was a big table and, and mom would put the, the, the nativity set up on top. And then at every Christmas Eve, we would she'd pull all of us kids in. We'd sit down on the floor in front of her, and she would tell the story of what what Christmas is all about. And she would take each figurine out of the the, the nativity scene, show us whether it was a camel or you know, or or the, you know, the Joseph and Mary, and this is the Christ child. This is it. and these are the shepherds, and these are the kings, and they named all the kings and everything. And and uh, so every every Christmas it was the same thing. Well, this one particular Christmas, you know, it, it, I, I was fast. I was probably six, seven years, well, maybe a little, maybe a little younger than about six years old. And mom was going through the story. Well, the only thing that you know at that time I'm beginning to grasp what she's saying, and I'm and I'm looking at this nativity set, and I'm thinking to myself, Wow, this kid had a lot of pull. He got every one of his animals at his birthday party. 
I said, how cool is that? Man, I don't get to have that in my house. I said, that was my birthday. But yet on his, he got to have all these animals. Of course, that's where he was born, in a manger, you know. Duh. Why he would have animals there. Uh-huh. Well, I went to bed that night. We went we went to bed early because that's, you know, they, they, mom and dad couldn't take any more of the noise and the racket. So we all went to bed early to see if Santa would come early. And uh, so next morning I got up, the typical time most kids get up uh, Christmas morning, about 4.15. And, uh, of course, nobody else is up, and I, I'm walking through there. I'm trying to find something to eat, and um, I pass by the nativity set again. And here's the Christ child all lit up, and he's got these animals around him. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that is something else. A young baby boy like that could have all of his animals. And then I got to thinking, you know, Mom said today's Christmas. This is this is the Christ child's birthday today. And we're celebrating, and we don't have one animal in this house to enjoy this day. Yeah, I said, you know, we ought to get some animals up here. So I put on my bunny slippers, and I took off down to the kennel where Dad kept all of his 35 black and tan coon dolls. <laughs> and I decided, you know, I'm going to let a couple of them out, bring them up to the house. They can enjoy Christmas like all the rest of us. So I don't know if you've ever been, been around hunting dogs or not, but the no. minute you open a gate for a hunting dog, they think they're going hunting. And you can't just let two out when you're only six years old. You can't hold the gate back. So the minute I opened the gate, all 35 dogs come paraling out of there, knocked me down, and took off toward the house. Now I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm dead meat here. I got all of Dad's favorite dogs out of the kennel. They're, they're making a beeline for the house. I'm running after them to try to catch up to them. And they get up to the house, and they're jumping. They're waiting. They think they're going in the Jeep. So they're jumping up on the front of the door. They're they're knocking down the the, the garland mom had, the wreath on the front door, and and trying to look in to see where dad is so they can go hunting. And I'm and and I'm sitting there, panicked because I'm thinking, oh man, dad's gonna kill me. They're all over mom's and they're they're in their rose bushes. They're in, and you know what dogs do when they get out of the pen. So it was a big disaster outside the house. Of course, nobody's up yet. Well, I got to thinking, you know, maybe. Uh, if I just open the front door a little bit, they'll be able to see what's going on in the house, and, <laughs> and we won't have any more problem. They'll quit their barking, and things will be fine. Well, my dad, every year we had a long hallway that went from the front door clear to the back part of the house, and right about three-quarters of the way down was a rotunda. It was a big round area that had kind of a spike ceiling, a high-pointed ceiling, and my dad, every year, would bring in a 20-foot blue spruce Christmas tree. And he had it beautifully decorated by the guys at the studio. They could come out and they'd bring all the ornaments, western stuff and glass balls and everything and hang it. It's just, I mean, absolutely professional, gorgeous tree it's, and perfect and symmetrics. Well, when I opened up the door, uh, my dad's favorite dog, Ghost, uh, sees the tree. And he starts buckling down the in the middle of this thing. Well, all the other dogs, are they push me out of the way the door swings in, you know, because it's a house, you know, the door swung in. Well... All the dogs start heading down the the pathway right at the tree because I guess they thought the coon was in the tree. I don't know. That's what they do. So my mom at Christmas time, uh, we had a beautiful terrazzo floor in the hallway, which is kind of a polished concrete, and we had a lot of guests at Christmas. So mom would put down these kind of Christmassy area rugs that kind of keep you from slipping when you're going from one area to the next. Well. The four or five lead dogs are heading for the tree. They're getting really close. They decide to slam on their brakes. So they slam on their brakes and uh, start to they hit the area rug and started to slide. 
and then the other dogs piling into the back of them because they didn't see them stop. Well, the next thing you know, they slid right into the base of that 20-foot tree. And the tree, I can still see it today, slowly tipping, and it finally fell over, and glass balls and ornaments breaking and bouncing everywhere. Well, needless, and you know what dogs do when they get into a tree. They were looking for the coon, I guess. Well, they woke my dad up. <laughs> and I guarantee you, you don't want to wake Roy Rogers up, have him come out into the living room where his 35 dogs and his best tree is on the floor with 35 dogs going through it because he will treat you <laughs> to the real meaning of Christmas. <laughs> and he, he did, and I wasn't able to sit down for a week, but... <laughs> <laughs> but that's just one of many, many, many stories. There's one about Easter rabbits that I'll tell you about some other time. But uh, <laughs> Easter bunnies, but because uh, we used to raise rabbits too. But that's just one of many, many Christmas stories. <laughs> I like that one. That that is good. As an aftermath, the, the um, epilogue. How did you get the dogs out? Dad got them out. He all he had to do was whistle at them, and then he just you know he went out front and whistled, and they all came out because they thought they were going hunting. And got them out, but the damage was done by then. So <laughs> they could have stayed for the party. <laughs> no, no, the hunting dog is an outdoor dog, and not an indoor for dog. For sure, so. for sure. Have they ever been in the house before? Not that this is any. No, they never had. No, Dad, he doesn't bring the dogs in because he says you know they they're outside dogs. They live outside. That I don't want them ruined by spending time in the house they'll get lazy and they'll lose their nose they won't be able to smell like they're you know, supposed to smell and so no he wouldn't let them in the house so this was um, an experience the first time oh, for yes. them as well it was uh, very much one of those Christmases that I wanted to forget oh, <laughs> oh my gosh oh my gosh okay we have to get to who you are what you do just everything mm-hmm. okay you want to hit on anything in particular well let's let's see what I've got on my list here um, <laughs> before we do that, um, does your, does, did your mom, Dale, have any ties to Louisville, Kentucky? Yeah, she was, uh, did some radio there in Louisville. Yeah. I, I ask because one of our listeners who knew we were going to be talking with you said, would you please ask if, about any ties to Louisville? He's, he, I guess, grew up in Louisville, and it was very important for him to know that. Yeah, it was a uh, mom did some radio there. In fact, she did some in, um, uh, in, out of Texas in Waxahachie. Then she went to, uh, up into, uh, up, uh, into uh, Arkansas, did a little bit of uh, radio there, over into Mississippi, and then on up into Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And then from Kentucky, uh, from Kentucky up to uh, Chicago. So she, you know, she did quite a bit of radio back in those days. But yeah, very much so, uh, Louisville. He'll, he'll be very happy to hear that, and I am too. That's that's really a nice piece <laughs> of background in history mm-hmm. for us. Um, for starters, and I know this is probably an entire interview of its own, and we probably should give you that amount of time. My gosh, um, and I'm overstaying my welcome here. Where and how did you begin to perform professionally? Well, I, I didn't. I didn't really want to. Um, I, I had no. When I was at a young age, I had no, you know, I, it, to me it was, uh, it was it was a lot of work, I mean, you know, because we, we, you know, we would do a lot of things Dad was doing and doing things, but I, I kind of wanted, you know, everybody, especially when you get a teenager, you become, you want your own space, you want to do your own thing, that's the time the good Lord puts in that uh, that clock that says, you know, you need to separate and do your own thing. Well, yeah. well I wanted to, uh, I wanted, I talked to Dad, I said, Dad, I'd, I'd like to go to Pasadena Playhouse and I'd love to study acting. And he said, son, I'm going to tell you right now. He said, you don't want to be in the movie business. It's a knockdown, drag out, terrible place to work. You know, he said, I was just fortunate enough that the good Lord put me in the right place at the right time. But he says, I got to guarantee you that it's it's something that I really don't want you in. But 
uh, I'm not, I, I won't pay your way to, to you know, but I'll, you know, I'll help you find a job. Well, I ended up working a, at a buddy of his at a tool and die factory making, uh, uh, you know, stuff for the Vietnam War. I, I just didn't want to do that. And so I, I quit, you know, I quit that job, which ticked him off because he said, you know, went to all that trouble getting. I said, yeah, Dad, I know that, and I appreciate it, but that isn't what I wanted to do. And he says, you got to stay away from the acting business. You just, you, I don't want you in it. I don't want you in Hollywood. <clears throat> and uh, so I, I said, fine, you know. So I, and of course, I did my, I did do a couple of movies. I, I, I did one called Arizona Bushwhackers with Howard Keel and Yvonne DiCarlo and Marilyn Maxwell and Brian Donlevy. It was a period piece on. Um, on uh, the Civil War, I, I got it. You know, my I worked three and a half days and I made 120 bucks, and uh, I got to thinking, <laughs> wow, you know, this really isn't a big deal. Then I did another movie. Let's see, it was called To Forgive a Thief that I starred in, and it it was um, a half hour program for Youth for Christ, and it was a great call to forgive a thief. And I worked 18 hours a day for eight days, and and, and made even less. So I got to thinking, now this isn't for me. I'll go, I'll go do something else. Well, <clears throat> I went back east um, uh, to visit with some friends, and I ran into my wife Linda back there, and uh, and we hit it off really well the first year. And, and I came back the next, the following year, went back home, and came back out to Ohio again, and we met, and and, uh, and that was when we started dating in May of uh, of '67, uh, and uh, in uh, in uh, November we got married, and. Uh, and so that kind of ended my my movie career because I and I, and the day I got married I got a call from A.C. Lyles from Paramount wanting me to come and star in some movie that he'd put together. Well, I told him sorry, I'm getting married. So that ended that career. So it started a new one though because I went to work in construction and I worked for Linda's dad for six years doing building homes and I learned an awful lot from him. I you know I learned how to build houses from the ground up, which later on proved out to be something that I really enjoyed and and made a living at for about 20 years. But while I was back in Ohio, I, I had, Linda and I had gone to a big festival in her hometown of Middlefield, Ohio. And there was a, they had a big uh, corn cooking thing and, and fried and fried chicken and all kinds of things in the, in the firehouse, like most little towns do. And there was a little group there um, that were, was playing country music and typical of most groups who play something like that, they're totally ignored. I mean, everybody's talking and trying to talk over the music and totally ignoring the kids, and they're they're knocking themselves out doing, I thought, a really great job. And uh, and coming from a showbiz family, I, I I didn't like the idea that people were ignoring them. So I got up on one of the tables and told everybody, to "Shut the hell up!" Excuse my French. There's a <laughs> bunch of kids here who are trying are giving you their talent, and you're not even paying attention to them. So just be quiet and listen to them for a while. And uh, they did. Everybody shut up and they listened to them, and uh, and that was that. And then about three days later, I get a call from that band, and uh, they said, "Hey, man, we really appreciate what you did." And I said, "Well, I mean, I would hope somebody would do the same for me." And uh, and they said, "Well, you know, do you sing?" And I said, "Well, no, just in the tub. I sing with my mom and dad quite often, you know, and stuff like that." And they said, "Well." You know, why don't you come over sometime and just you know you know just jam with us a little bit and we'll we'll see how well you do. And so I did. I went to I drove up to their place one day and I was embarrassed and a little backwards on doing it, but I I sang with them and uh, and um, within three months of that first utterance of that, I had my own TV show on WWS. Uh, out of uh, like I told you earlier, 
um, about the uh, summer replacement show. So wow. that's, that started my, you know, my getting into the singing end of it. Mom said, I she always said, like, you know, I, 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 you should hear your son sing. He's, you know, I heard him singing in the shower. And he sounds great, Roy. And Dad's, well, you can't prove it by me, though. Your guy won't sing at all. Well, I, I took it up then, and uh, and I went with Dad on the road and uh, uh, on one of the roast, roast beef restaurant things. I think it was that Cincinnati trip, and I was singing along with the, what's going on on the radio. And he said, man, you sound pretty good. He says, when you get back to the hotel, can you sing something into my tape recorder for your mother? And I said, well, yeah, sure. So we got back to the hotel, and I, I sang a little song. I, I, I think it was Marty Robbins, My Woman, My Woman, My Wife, or something. And, 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 uh, and so Dad took it home. And um, he was getting ready to do an album down in Nashville and uh, with Capitol. And he said, would you meet me down there? I said, well, sure. And so I met him down there, and I I got a chance to do a demo, a little demo down there while I was there. And uh, I did the demo, and within two weeks I was signed to Chart Records in, in Nashville and, and, and recorded uh, a few singles, and they were doing really well. And the next thing you know, I got the Nashville contingency after me to go on the road and do different things. But, you know, all of a sudden my childhood kept flooding back to me. And by this time, Linda and I have one little girl and, and, uh, and I'm, and I'm just, I'm thinking of all the times that I was set at the end of the driveway and watched mom and dad drive off and not knowing when they were coming back for sure and uh, missing them terribly. And I thought, you know, I can't do this to my kids. I just, I can't, I, I can't put them through that. So even though it was a great life and I understood it, it, they might not. My wife, and you know, she's from a small town in Ohio, and, and, and show business was the farthest thing from her mind, and, and I had a good job working for her dad, and so I gave it up. I said, no, I'm not going to do it, so I hung it all up. And then when I moved back out to California after six years in Ohio, I, I started, uh, Mom was always after me. She said, why don't you start your own band? Why are you working with other people all the time? I said, oh, I can't put a band together. She said, well, sure you can. So I got couple guys that I knew and we started jamming out a little bit and uh, and same thing happened there the minute I started it man before you know it I'm assigned to Vistone Records and making albums and and we're off and running and mom named the band called us the High Riders and uh, I was going to call them something else and she said no 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 you know guys are just starting out you're new you need some real bright feisty name you know he says you guys are you know you're a cowboy you should be called a rider High Riders that's what you need a High Riders you're riding high you know I said, okay, so that's that's the name we took, and it stuck over the last 25 years or so, 30 years. But uh, uh, that's how it got started with me, and I just, you know, it it, it it felt comfortable again. My kids were up a little older now, and they understood when Dad would go. I wouldn't go for any length of time, but I'd go and do, you know, road shows and everything every once in a uh-huh. while. But never traveled much. I just did it on my own. And then when we, uh, to make a long story short, we came here to, Cal- uh, to uh, Branson, Missouri, uh, to do uh, uh, to move move the museum here, and while we uh, are here, we had a sh- I, we put in a show because we thought we needed uh, the show to add to the to the experience of the museum, and so I brought the high riders with me, and we went to work here, and uh, we've been here ever since, and now we're on the road a lot. In fact, we're we're leaving uh, this weekend to go up to Wisconsin, so we're doing a lot of a lot of traveling right now uh, on the road. Plus, we do a show five days a week here uh, from. Uh, uh, Monday through uh, Saturday, and uh, it's just been it's just been the experience has been terrific. It really has, and uh, and I wouldn't trade anything. The way things have gone, it's been just really nice, and and uh, I've been able to make several um, DVDs and several albums, and I'm just thrilled to death at where I'm at right now. Well, you just took my breath away. 
Um, you're singing, uh, or I should say, Dustin is singing with That's my you? son. Yeah, Dustin. He's uh, he's 40. Let me see. Dustin just turned 40, so he's uh, he's uh, he's been singing with me about three years now, and uh, he looks he looks just as he's a spin image of my dad when my dad was in his late 30s, early 40s, and uh, he looks just like his grandpa. And uh, he's a little bigger. He's uh, six foot five, and uh, he's a firefighter in addition. So. A battalion chief here in town, so he's uh, he's on call a lot, but he's not on call all the time, so it works out really well. He can work with me in the theater, and and it's been a great to have the family there. I got all you know my family working with my wife takes care of the, the concession sales and stuff like that, and uh, so it's been really nice to have uh, have family there. You are also an, a writer. Well, I got that thing. It kind of came to me too. Also, that I had a lot of people all the time saying, you know, Dusty, what? I think probably the biggest question I get in my entire life is what's it like growing up to be the son of Roy Rogers? Well, it's kind of hard to answer in one sentence or, you know, word or, uh, you know, and so I decided, well, maybe I need to write it out, script it out a little bit and see what, see what it's, if it has any merit. Well, I started working on it. Well, you know, I'm a typical guy. I can't concentrate on anything once and stay on it for any length of time. So I, you know, put it in and out, in and out, in and out. I never did work on it very, very solid. But then I got a call from Ravel, or uh, an assidery of uh, Ravel, Gospel Light Productions, and they said, uh, you know, we think that uh, you coming from such a Christian-oriented family that you need, maybe you'd like to do a book. And I said, well, I'm not a writer. And they said, well, we, we don't want you to write a book that, uh, you know, that is philosophy-driven or anything like that. We just want you to write a book that tells what the life was like. And I said, well, I can do that. But I said, I'm a cowboy. I don't know any of those 85-cent words that you guys know. And they said, well, we'll put a ghostwriter with you, and, and she can maybe help you, you know, put your thoughts together and get them in some kind of, you know, format. And I said, well, that'd be great. So uh, that's what we did, and it took about year and a half, two years to get the book done, but uh, but we got it done, and uh, it's called Growing Up with Roy and Dale, and it's just full of the stories that uh, that Mom wouldn't write in her books <laughs> about how rotten us boys were when we were little, but, <laughs> but it was it was fun to write, and it it, 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 and it it gave my life, basically, growing up with Roy and Dale from the time I was a little tiny tyke all the way up through the loss of the, my brothers and sisters and, and uh, into my life with uh, my wife and, and my three kids, so... Yeah, it was fun to it was fun to write, but I, I you know it's been eighty and I wonder what did you say eighty three or eighty five or eighty nine. Eighty nine, yeah, I don't know. It's been so long right. ago, and that I really need to do an addendum to it or add to it. So I'm I'm going to start working on that. I've been putting some thoughts together to try to bring it up to a little more data of what's happened since the loss of my parents and uh-huh. stuff. So I think it'd be interesting. I, I think it would be interesting to people to, to find out you know what what that experience was like, but. I don't know. I, I, I'm like I say. I'm a typical guy. It's hard for him to get me to lock down, especially to sit for very long and and write out my thoughts. Because, uh, like I say, I'm a cowboy. I either can't think of a word to use or I fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I fall asleep writing my own life story, there's got to be a problem there, right? <laughs> well, um, no, because you know the subject so well. <laughs> it's not like reading a mystery. Oh, uh, it, you know, yeah. and I and I get to second guessing myself. I said, you know, why would anybody want to read this? But but I guess people do. So people I'm, do. I'm going to keep working on it. People do. 
Are, are you performing, did I get this correctly, that you're performing at the Mickey Gilly Theater? Mickey Gilly's Theater, yeah. We had to close the museum down here about two I and a half years ago. I wanted to talk about ago. that, yeah. Yeah. And so we were looking for a place to go, and uh, and Mickey, we got a hold of Mickey, and he said, man, we'd love to have you guys up here at the theater. So we, we went up there two years ago, and uh, this is our second season at, 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 this, at his theater, and it's been a really a lot mm-hmm. of fun to work there. We did the morning show, 10 a.m., and uh, and like I say, Monday through through sat, uh, through uh, Friday. And, boy, it's just been uh, been a lot of fun. What do people ask for? Most popular request? Uh, what, for me? Mm-hmm. Um, well, Tumbling Tumbleweeds, Cool Water, and King of the Cowboys. Ah, the, the ones the whole world knows. <laughs> I love it. Sure. Um, I, I, before, I, I just want to touch on the auction in just a minute, but mm-hmm. I don't want to miss an opportunity to let people know how they can get your book, how they can get... DVDs, CDs, mm-hmm. where can they go? How can they get them? Well, they can get uh, all that stuff through if they go to um, the RoyRogersJuniorShow.com. It's pretty simple. I and, like that. And all yep. the information is up there? Right. RoyRogersShow.com. RoyRogersJuniorShow.com. Ah, forgive me. RoyRogersJuniorJRShow.com. Right. Sounds simple enough they can to get me. Our, they can get our work schedule, our travel schedule, everything's on there, so. Oh, excellent! Mm-hmm. You had to close the museum. Right. Um, it the items went up for auction. Mm-hmm. Did you realize enough to take care of financial obligations? And uh, what kind of a heart hurt was this? Oh, it was big for me. Uh, it was really big for me. Uh, uh, it, it just ate on me something terrible to have to close it. But you know, Dad told us years ago. He said, "Gang, you know." I'd love you to keep the museum going as long as you can, but when it becomes a point where it's costing you money and no longer financially viable, you need to get rid of it. There's no sense, you know, staying on a sinking ship if it's not going to make it. And so when we moved it to Branson, we were able to keep it going for another six or seven years. But, um, you know, California was dying on the vine there. And, you know, Mom and Dad's uh, fans have, have quit traveling or they're, you know, they're, they're hunkering down a little bit. And they're not out traveling. And the young people, they don't know who Roy is. So... It, it just got to the point where our rent was killing us here. That's uh, we had a building we were in. It was costing us thirty thousand dollars a month in rent, <gasps> and uh, not not counting all of the, the you know what it cost us. Now, our, when we first moved here, that was fine because we were doing business hand over fist. But you know, after six or seven years, it just uh, it was eating our eating our shorts alive here, and so we yeah. just had to. And so we got we reached that point. Then we got then we had the dilemma of what do we do. Um, I called the kids up and I see I'm the trustee, the sole trustee of the trust that mom and dad left behind. And part of the trust, of course, was the collection. Mm-hmm. And I called the kids, I said, gang, um, uh, in uh, December of 2009, uh, we're going to have to close the museum. We can't keep it open anymore. And they all understood. And I said, well, what? we, we have to deal with this collection. And, and our family is no different than anybody else's family. Uh, when your parents pass away, you have got to do something with their house, their car, all of their things, their clothes. Everything that meant anything to them is in their home. Right. And uh, in our home, mom and dad's home just happens to be 30,000 square feet of stuff. I mean, what do you, what do, you do with it? My dad was a, a guy, typical guy. Uh, we can't throw anything away. So he saved everything uh, that he could possibly save and kept it in a box or whatever and, and ended up in a museum. And, well, I called the kids up and I said, you know, gang, is there anything 
that you particularly would want. I said, you know, to, and to keep it fair, I mean, to all six kids, the only way equitably to, to make it equitable for all is to, number one, let somebody pick out whatever they want if they do want something. Uh, but then if, they, if somebody was, takes a silver saddle and then somebody else takes a bowling ball, um, the values are so different that, you know, somebody's getting a little bit more than the other, and I didn't want to cause problems amongst the family members, you know. So I said, guys, I mean, I think our only option here is to, if there is something you want, uh, let me know what it is. Well, I none of them asked for anything. And uh, so I asked my sister, Linda Lou, if she, you know, in particular, no. She said, no, those are the things that, uh, that took mom and dad away from us. And uh, when we were kids working, and uh, I just, you know, I really don't need any of it. So everybody kind of jumped in and said, okay, then we need to auction it and let the fans, people who really loved mom and dad, to have something. Whether it doesn't have to be a big item, if they, you know, they get a teacup that belonged to mom or a coffee cup that belonged to dad, they're just thrilled to death to have something. So mm-hmm. we just decided to throw it open to auction, and, and it took a uh, it took almost three years to get rid of two and a half years to get rid of all of it i mean it was just amazing um we did like nine ten auctions and it was just it was heart-wrenching for me because i had to stand there in front of every piece and tell everybody what it was and and over and over and over again for days in and days out so it it was a tough a tough deal but we got through it pieces of your life well, it is. I mean, I, you see your life going out uh, for bid and somebody taking it and people messing with stuff that, you know, was yours when you were a kid and, you know, your mom and dad's. And it, it's yeah. tough. It's, it's really tough. But like I say, we're no different to anybody else. It just happens that we have 30,000 square feet instead of a 2,000 square foot home to, to dissolve. So, But we got it done. It's all done and we're moving on down the road now. So, so you have nothing left that needs to be sold, no. auctioned, disposed no. of, it's everything all, is taken care of. It's all taken of. care of. Everything is taken care mm-hmm. of. There were a couple of articles about uh, the auction items that Christie's mm-hmm. handled for you, Right. and some of them were staggering. Could I go through a couple of them sure, and tell yeah. me if they're on target Absolutely. here? Sure. Um, Nellie Bell, the Jeep, mm-hmm. $116,500. Mm-hmm. Who is going to display or keep, or how do you keep a Jeep of such historic value? Well, the the, the lady that bought, the, the, it's a very nice lady, and she and her future husband, I mean, they she bought it for him, basically. She, he has a little auto museum up in Pennsylvania uh, and a horse farm, and he's in the oil business of some kind of... Uh, What a great gift to him to get him something like that. So uh, Nellie Bell's up there in an auto museum, and they bring Nellie Bell out once in a while. They all, I think Nellie Bell's coming to Dad's big hometown celebration in Portsmouth in a month or so. And and so they take her around. They take old Nellie Bell out, and uh, she runs good, and uh, and they take her out and do her in parades. And so it's, it's kind of neat. That's somebody, How sweet. They're, they're just I'm, I'm in so love happy. with it. I'm so happy that it wound up. With a family that, uh, I mean, it's really a family that we're talking about. She's oh, yeah. Well, all of us kids learned to drive on Nellie Bell, so it meant an awful lot to us, too, that somebody that would get it that would appreciate what, what, what she was, and, and, and they definitely do. The Bonneville, the 1964 Bonneville that was specially outfitted. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it had 27 guns and 390 different silver dollars in it. And <laughs> it was an amazing vehicle. It had horns in the front and guns on the side. <laughs> saddle in the, a saddle to sit in the middle neck between the driver and guns in behind the front back seats. It was, uh, it was quite a car. It was a parade car that my dad's... Uh, a rodeo tailor that made all his fancy clothes made uh, for Dad, and uh, he got it way back in 19, I think 65 or 66, Dad got it. This is what you call a custom car. Oh, yeah, very much so. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, it, it was estimated, according to the information I have, it was estimated between one hundred and $150,000 that it would go for for auction, and it went for 254500 right. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's a quarter of a million dollars for a car. Where did the Bonneville go? Uh, Bonneville went up to uh, uh, a fellow up, I believe, up in Denver uh, has him. And, uh, again, a car collector who just loved Roy. And when he saw that car, he says, man, that is Roy Rogers all over the place. i got to have that. And he does the same thing. He takes it to car shows. He drives her in, drives him uh, around in parades. And, uh, and and he's just proud to be. He had a hat made that looks like Dad's, and he drives around <laughs> all over town. I love it. Did your father drive it a lot? Oh, yeah, yeah. He put a lot of, a lot of miles on it. Sure. He did? Like, okay, yeah. this was not something that was just put well, away. Well, and... you couldn't drive it around today. You couldn't leave it parked somewhere. You'd end up with nothing but a pair of cement blocks and two wheels. I, I mean, if you, you left it out there now. Stop but... at a traffic light, I guess, yeah. <laughs> without, without risking that. Um, trigger. Mm-hmm. Trigger was mounted and yes. preserved. And uh, he was preserved in 1965, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. He sold for $266,500. That was a little bit more than the Bonneville. Right. Um, and he was worth a lot more than the Bonneville. <laughs> Where did Trigger go? Trigger and Bullet both went to the same buyer. Yeah, uh, he spent about a total of $308,000 on the combination of the two. Uh-huh. And uh, <clears throat> he, um, uh, both of them are owned by RFD uh, Television um, out of uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And um, the guy that bought him is a name guy. His name is Patrick, and uh, he uh, owns the uh, the cable channel. It goes into about 45 million homes across the United States. It's more of a rural type of of, of uh, television. Mm-hmm. And he's been running Dad's movies there, and he's running Dad's TV show. But he was just thrilled to get him. And he says, "I don't really own these." He said, "They're they're owned by the Rogers family, and always will be." He says, "I just a custodian right now." But they're they're traveling all over. In fact, they're getting ready. To, uh, uh, both of them are on tour. They've been down to Florida, down to the the ARP convention uh, down there. They've been to the National Finals Rodeo in uh, in, in uh, Vegas. They've been down to Texas for the Big Cattlemen's Association. They've been up to the Future Farmers Big Convention in Iowa. They're, and now they're getting ready to, in October, well, they're going to Dad's hometown celebration here in, this next month. And they're also going to go to China uh, at a big, huge rodeo in October. They're going on over there at the Olympic uh, village in uh, in uh, Beijing so it's uh they they're, they're seeing the world <laughs> and then they'll end up back here in Omaha in Omaha at RFD's uh, national headquarters in the lobby there where people can still see them this is just so cool i am so happy that all of all of these things that were so special to all of us are going to people who know how special they really are. Right, and that's that's the one thing that we were so thrilled about that that, that none of it that we know of ended up in any big corporate corporate office or anything like that. Uh-huh. It all went to private private collectors who were just thrilled to death to get something. You know? Really special to them too. Buttermilk. Mm-hmm. Buttermilk, yeah. Uh, the lady that bought buttermilk, um, uh, actually, she said, "I don't know exactly where I'm where I'm going to put him." Uh, I just love that horse, and, and, and Dale riding him, and, and, and right now, 
I've got him covered up, and he's in my garage. I took my car out of the garage, and I'm gonna. But I'm gonna find. I'm gonna, even if I have to build a little building in the back, I'm gonna find a place to have him here in town where people can come see him. So, same kind of a thing. She said, I just, I just could not let somebody else get him. I had to have. I had to have buttermilk. So. Are you saying buttermilk wasn't the mayor? No. Mm-mm. No. I didn't know that. Yeah, buttermilk was a was a guy. <laughs> he was a he was a gelding. He was a, 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 a what they call a buckskin. Uh huh. And and the reason why he was a he was the fact that Trigger was a stallion. Yeah. And you can't have a stallion uh-huh. and a mare working together on the same set. It no, doesn't you work cannot. out. <laughs> so, <Really me. laughs> so so they they uh, uh, they decided to to use a he so that there wouldn't be any major problems uh-huh. on the set. Okay. Well, I I feel really foolish because I knew that. <laughs> uh, same reason Lassie was a Lassie. <laughs> wasn't yeah. a Lassie. Well, Dad was afraid to have have Trigger gelded because he he had such spark and such uh, yeah. you know, and he was afraid that that uh, uh, that you know he would lose that spark if he had him cut. So he decided not to, and so they just decided to, that buttermilk had to be a, a a male, so there wouldn't be any anything going on on the set that shouldn't be. Uh huh. Did he did he ever sire little triggers? No, no. Dad never had any offspring from Trigger. Now, uh, there were some offspring of Trigger Junior. Ah, okay. Um, but not of not of Trigger Senior. Okay. Well, Trigger Junior was the Tennessee the, Walking the stand-in. Horse. Yeah. He was the stand-in. Did he go on tours with your dad? Yeah, oh yeah, all the time. Trigger didn't travel all that well uh, in any kind of a container, but uh, you could haul uh, Trigger Junior anywhere. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been talking with Dusty Rogers, Roy Rogers Jr., uh, and having a wonderful time here. Dusty, what should I have asked you that I didn't? I don't know. <laughs> what would you what, what would you have liked me to ask, but I didn't? Well, I don't know. I, I think probably we've pretty much covered everything, and, and I think the one thing that, that I haven't asked a couple of different times before was how... How did your mom and dad, what did they tell you that they wanted to be remembered? How did they want to be remembered ah. in, in their lifetime? And I tell them, I said, well, you know, my parents were very humble people. Uh, dad was just a good old country boy, and, and mom mom was, a, 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 you know, just a gal from Texas who uh, grew up uh, in, a, in a middle-class family and, uh, and was married at the age of 14 and uh, had her first child then, and so... You know, they both of them didn't get much of a chance to be a child, but they they certainly uh, were childlike in their in, in their love of children. And uh, I think, you know, my as far as my dad was concerned, I think all he ever you know his headstone uh, where he's buried and moms are very simple. Um, they just have their names on it. They're they're given names and uh, and the names that they took on uh, and the date when they came into this life and the date that they left this life. But uh, other than that. Uh, there's not much on their their headstones to tell people what they wanted to be thought of, but I think I think that uh, just to know that uh, both of them are in the in the hearts of so many uh, young people who were young back when they were stars is is all of the the thanks and the love that they need, and that they will be remembered as long as people remember their name and say their name and and talk about them like we are. They'll never be forgotten. And uh, so I think, you know, Dad just wanted to be known that, that he was a good dad and he was a, a not a, a great actor, but a, a, an actor that got by and and just and, and, and was blessed by the Lord and putting him in the right place at the right time. And my mother, 
Um, I mean, she was just, as far as I'm concerned, she was a saint on this earth, and uh, nobody can tell me different. And I always told her, she always tell, you know, told me, you know, Dusty, you have to behave yourself in life because you, what you do here, there's a mansion that you build with every building block you put here on earth. Do good deed you do, you put a new book, another brick into your mansion that the good Lord said that he was going to make for you. And uh, I said, Mom, if that's the case, when I die, I just want to come back as your gardener because you're going to have one heck of a place out there. So. <laughs> but, uh, they were, you know, they're just two simple people who just made a huge impact and, and just loved every minute of it and, and, and wouldn't change. If you ask them to change anything, they'd say, no, uh, we don't want to change anything. Uh, even if we could change it, we wouldn't want to. It's all part of living and part of life, and that's who we are and will be. So... Uh, and that's about all I can tell you about those two. They were they were just magnificent parents, and uh, and I wouldn't want to you know have par- any other parents than those two. They were just uh, exceptional. What a great way to finish up an interview, Dusty Rogers. You can visit his website at Dusty. Yeah, or well, the Roy Rogers Junior Show dot com. Very simple, Roy Rogers Junior dot com. And? Just don't put a D in Rogers. No telling where you'll end up. No. <laughs> You know, there are a couple of Roy Rogers sites up yes, there. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they kind of uh, gave me a left turn until I got to the real one. I knew the real one when I got there, though. Yeah. There's, so there's another like website, it's at RoyRogers.com, and that has a lot of the uh, mom and dad stuff. You know, it's, uh-huh. a, different, it's a different deal altogether. Yeah, but they're, they're not bad. They're just not yours. Right, right. So, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. And you do look like your dad. You've a little your bit. Dad I'm, kind of the, I'm kind of the older Roy, and my son is kind of the younger Roy, so yes. kind of, we kind of cover the, the gambit there. There, There is no question about family lineage there. None <laughs> and we share all. some pretty strong genes, I think. I think so, and I'm yeah. so glad you do. Dusty, this has been such a joy for me to talk with you. And well, I sure appreciate I know, it. Oh, it's my pleasure entirely. If you could stay on the phone for just a couple of seconds, um, Walden will finish up our interview, and we can have a couple of minutes on the phone. Okay. That'd be fine. I, I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Here we go, everybody. Here is a radio show.